Hello, and welcome to this brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I'm your co-host, Dave Gale, coming to you <laughs> from California. Uh, and we're having a, a very mirthful morning already. That's right. It's, it's, we're having a it's a morning of hilarity morning. over in California, yeah. exactly. That's right. And in Texas, yes, indeed. Uh, <laughs> as you... As you can hear, I'm joined as always by my co-hosts, Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and Trish Lambert, the Tolkien Maven. And uh, today we're, we're diving back into our journey through episode uh, brainstorming and outlining, and we're doing episodes three and four, which uh, look to be quite exciting and fun. I'm, I'm taking a look at the notes here. I see a training montage. A training Thanks. montage, right? We're going to get to do a training montage, and you know it's a good episode if you get to do a training montage. <laughs> right. In fact, I think this is the first time we've ever been able to do a training montage in film film, and I'm excited. I mean, we kind of talked about the possibility of maybe doing like a, a Smithcraft montage with Fanor earlier on, you know, during the right. point when we were trying to establish like, and during this time in which a lot of time passed, Fanor did lots of things, you know, and made lots of stuff. But I think apart from that, we never really got a chance to do a, to do a montage, so... Uh, I think that's going to be exciting. So, all right. Uh, today, I, we have uh, some exciting announcements today that I want to begin with, including one. This is a super exciting one that I've been waiting for for a long time. I've been in the planning for years. So Mythmoot is coming up. That's not the thing that's been in the planning for years. We do that every year, and it's awesome every year, and it's happening on June 27th through the 30th. But this year, we are doing a new thing, which we are calling Mootcast. That is, this year, you can do a virtual registration to Mythmoot for the first time, and you will get to attend all of the sessions at Mythmoot live through GoToWebinar uh, for the whole weekend. And in addition to getting live participation at all of the events all weekend, well, all of the panels, all weekend long, the panels and talks all weekend long, you will also get access to digital recordings of all of them, which means that you not only can attend the things that you want to hear, you can also go back and watch the recordings of the things you had to miss because they were happening at the same time. Uh, so it's uh, going to be really awesome. Mythmoot is, uh, you know, for in at, Signum University, this is the, you know, the event of the year. This is the, the biggest item on our calendar. Uh, it is always so much fun. Um, the kind of community that we've had at MythMoot has been really great. Such a wonderful uh, combination of, you know, f uh, fun and uh, uh, warm community and intellectual stimulation. It's been great. But I know that not everybody can make it, right? Not everybody can can uh, can either afford or get to travel. Uh, you know, for some people, are super far away. So you can still attend MythMoot through the MythCast registration. So I've got a page here somewhere for MythCast. Yeah, um, uh, this is our MoodCast. So. Uh, uh, so this is signumuniversity.org slash mythmoot slash mootcast. Uh, on the mythmoot page, there's a link here. And you can read all information about how it works. Registration for mootcast is $75 for the whole weekend and for access to the digital archives uh, for the future. So that's what's going to be happening this year. You can see there are FAQs and everything. You can only sign up through mythmoot. So this is not something that you'll be able to like two years from now, go back and order the archives. We're not going to be selling it after the fact this is attendance at a live event. That's how this works. And so, uh, this is virtual attendance at a, at a live event. Anyway, so, uh, this is, uh, 
this is going to be this is going to be a lot of fun. I've been we've been kind of gearing up for this. You may remember we were kind of practicing streaming some things last year. That was like we were working. I you know and I mentioned at the time that was sort of like proof of concept. Can we make this work? Um, we were experimenting with a bunch of our setups and trying to understand how it worked so that we because we didn't want to offer it as a registration option until we we're pretty confident that we could deliver. Uh, so. Uh, now we're we're able to we're able to do the whole thing, and I'm uh, I'm delighted. So uh, this is the big change at MythMooth this year. The big addition, I should say. Nothing's changed, but this is uh, uh, this on top. So um, anyway, that's the first thing that I wanted to announce. We'll go back to my announcements page. The second thing, uh, two things going on with the MythGuard Academy. We have just come to the end. We just had la uh, night before last session number 35 of our Sir Thomas Mallory reading, our epic reading through the entire Mark Darthur by Sir Thomas Mallory. So we've done all 700 pages in Middle English over the last 35 sessions, and it's been awesome. It's been like, it's like an item off my bucket list. I'm really excited. But we've come to the end now which means two things first of all it means i'm going to fulfill a promise that i made to the attendees of the of the mallory class that we're going to talk about monty python and the holy grail at the end of it uh because one of the great perks of reading uh, Sir Thomas Mallory all the way through is that Monty Python and the Holy Grail becomes even funnier than it was before. Uh, so we're going to talk about that next Wednesday on May 8th. And then this, the week after that on May 15th, our new, our next discussion will begin Sauron Defeated, Volume 9 of the History of Middle-Earth containing the end of the history of the Lord of the Rings. So if, you, if we're, we're, we'll talk first about the final stages uh, of the drafting of the Lord of the Rings, including, of course, the unpublished epilogue of the Lord of the Rings, which is included there uh, in Sour and Defeated. And then we're going to do, uh, uh, we're, we're, we're going to do, uh, of course, the Notion Club papers, which is the central part of this volume, uh, which is a very remarkable unfinished work by Tolkien um, uh, that he was working on there after he finished the Lord of the Rings. So, um, Really, really fun stuff coming up in the MythGuard Academy. Uh, go to MythGuard.org, and uh, on the pages there, you can see the registration, the necessary registration links for those uh, uh, for those events. They will also both be streamed on Twitch. Um, and then uh, an another uh, final announcement, though it's the one that's coming up soonest. This coming Sunday, that is the day after tomorrow, I'm going to do another Lord of the Rings online marathon. I haven't done one in a while. I haven't uh, played much outside my Grifflet stream in a while. Uh, my character, Wigan, who is level 99, uh, I'm going to take him to Minas Tirith. He's gotten through the Battle of Pelargir, and we're going to go. I'm going to go up to Minas Tirith and see how close I can get to the Battle of Pelennor Fields um, on Sunday. So I'm going to start at 1 p.m. Eastern time and go through into the evening. And can I just say, I don't care if you're a Lotro player or not, the ride of the Rohirrim will be totally worth it. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I Especially really listening love to Corey this. squee, because Corey's going to squeeze through the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, 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 the main thing that I would emphasize here, what this is not me just sort of streaming a game. I, I have never seen this stuff before. So That's this right. is, it's all you know, when I'm, when I'm streaming yeah. Wigand, I am exploring and, and seeing parts of the game for the first time that I've never seen uh, and uh, really getting like first impressions of the adaptation and development of the story as they're as they do it in Lotro. So uh, it's uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So anyhow, um, that's uh, 
that's that's coming up very soon. So that's going to be the day after tomorrow on Sunday, May 5th. All right. End of announcements. Let us get to the heart of our matter here this morning, and that is episodes three and four. So we talked about one and two. Episode one, uh, we we had the rescue of Mithros, right, and his return to the camp. We had the meeting between the Sindar and the Noldor, right, which was also happening then. So it was a very Mithrim-focused episode, uh, uh, primarily, right? Then in episode two, we had... Mithros recuperating, but we had Mithros, um, the whole issue of kingship and high kingship. And we uh, did another little mini digression on uh, kingship, uh, elves and kingship there, uh, which was really cool. Um, And uh, I still like the idea that I was trying to develop in that episode of how it's not a question of like who's going to be high king now, but uh, the 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 formation of the concept of high king of the Noldor and and the establishment of the of the separate kingdoms. Um, okay, so um, uh, all right, so that's that was and that was the the meat of episode two. We also had Galadriel's decision to go off to. Um, uh, to Doriath uh, as sort of semi self-appointed ambassador. And we were talking about her own sort of ambitious goals there during that time. Right. Um, So that was um, uh, uh, also a major part of what we were looking at there in episode two. So episode three, we have uh, a list of the following things that we have said should be going on in episode three. Fingolfin, wears a crown, right? So we have, we, we've established that this is the idea. So showing him wearing a crown as High King. Uh, Angrod and Celeborn go to Doriath. So we have, we need to get, we, we need to get both of them there. We need to get Angrod there because we still want Angrod to play his role of, um, uh, of speaking on, you know, speaking on behalf of the Nolder. So he's going to come and he's going to basically, Galadriel is going to abdicate essentially, right, as ambassador. And now remind me, uh, <clears throat> uh, Marie and Nick, I see you're both here. Can you remind me, do we have, um, uh, did, did we do Goadriel seeing, like looking into the eyes of Melian? Did that happen in episode two? Was that, did that like come at the end of episode two? I don't, uh, rem- yeah, okay. So that did happen in episode two. Great, great. Okay. So, her crisis of conscience, even though um, uh, even though you know we haven't talked about it, right? We haven't sort of reflected on it. It's happened, right? Okay, great. So she's not going to be ambassadoring anymore, right? She's not going to be bearing any. Uh, so you know there might be some. What has there been a message of some kind, right? You know, is uh, um, has she said to Fingolfin, you know, sent a message to Fingolfin saying like, I'm out, like I'm not going to report back. I'm not, you know, that I I I do not now choose to do that which I came here to do. Uh, and so Angrod is going to be sent instead to take up that role. We also do need to get Kelborn back to Doriath so that we can have uh, him uh, hanging out with Galadriel. And of course, we get the beginning of the Caranthir-Angrod feud. And this comes in the context of when everyone's establishing kingdoms, right? And Angrod is going to bear Thingol's message to the Noldor saying, all right, you can, uh, 
it's okay. It's kind of okay for you to have kingdoms, but like not here. And the, and and the, you know, Angrod or sorry, Karanthir is going to be the voice of the Noldor who are resistant to that. Um, uh, that who deny Thingol's authority essentially. Um, we've got the Noldor exploring Beleriand and claiming their realms. The meeting of Gwadril uh, and Celeborn. The second meeting of Gwadril and Celeborn. Um, Kirdan rebuilds the Havens because uh, remember they got trashed last season by armies which contained lots of werewolves. Mithros learns to get the Mithros training uh, montage, right? That's going to be awesome. Uh, and then the Fanorians leaving Mithrim and going to establish their kingdoms. So we're basically doing episodes three and four. We're doing of Beleriand and its realms, right? This is when we're establishing people. So that to me, the biggest challenge of both episode three and four is what happens, right? Like there's almost no action. The only action that we get is an argument, right? Um, there will be some a certain amount of tension at that meeting, especially between Angrod and Karanthir, right? That's kind of the only drama, <laughs> right, at all during this episode. Um, and that seems to me kind of a challenge, really. Um, but let's... So actually, no, I was going to say, let's talk about the individual things first, but no, let's, let's, let's think about this big picture here. Just as an episode, what's the shape of this episode going to be? Um, I mean, I'm not one to follow rules that say like there must be a certain amount of tension and resolution in, in every episode or whatever, but, but a plot's good. <laughs> right? I mean, some kind of story movement uh, is good. Uh, but um, uh, I don't know. Dave and Trish, how uncomfortable are you with the lack of, of action? And by action, I don't mean fight scenes, right? I just mean things happening. Um, how uncomfortable are you with this? We do have some character development stuff going on. I'm I'm fine with it. Okay. Doesn't bother me. Doesn't, Doesn't bother, bother me. I think right. it could. As long as we have, I mean, it's as long as we have good be... character moments. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Hakan says Game of Thrones viewers will be trained to watch a couple hours of talking. Um, <laughs> That's true. That's true. 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 As long as it's interesting talking. Right. Right. Um. Okay. Well, um, so let's think about then. Let's think about sequencing. Um, I would like going to have down some the here. going down the lists on these two slides of like sort of of uh, stuff that folks yeah. have brainstormed could could take place. I mean, it's, it seems like a fair amount, but I guess it is true that there's nothing there's nothing propelling the story forward here. It's um, it's a lot of hints at things, setting things up. Lining yeah, so, some stuff up, you know, like Mithros learning to do. I mean, you know, we're sort of this is sort of like an inhale episode. We're just sort of like stopping and inhaling. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I guess my biggest concern, well, not my biggest concern. I think as long as we're as long as we're moving forward the overall story clearly. Um, right. But see, I, I, you know, I mean, you know, Hakan, I'm thinking about your joke about a game. 
Game of Thrones viewers watching a couple hours of talking, but see, talk counts as action. I'm not worried about talk, right? Um, in certain cases, talk counts as action. I mean, this is to me, it it reminds me of like the classic uh, complaint with which I have no patience at all when people are saying like, oh, Jane Austen is boring because nothing ever happens. Like, yes, lots of stuff happen, right? Um, even if there's just like exchanges in a, in a drawing room, right? during the conversations lots of stuff is happening right there's and not even just in the in some question of character development i mean the like the plot is moving forward like that is action that is happening um but there's a difference between action like action talk right and just exposition and the uh, the settling, the establishing of the of the Noldor into different realms, um, which begins to happen in episode three and sort of more or less completes in episode um, in episode four. That's um, hard, I think, hard um, because that's not exactly action. But I think that we can contextualize it. Um, as long as we're contextualizing it in the big story, right? Um, it seems to me when when things like this happen, when people are just kind of traveling from one place to another and and uh, uh, and this kind of thing, as long as there's not a like, why do we care about this situation, right? Um, then we're fine, I think. Um, we just don't want to make sure. Well, we, we just, here's an idea. Want to make it clear. Make sure it's clear. People know why they should care about any of this stuff. Right. One of the names that's on this slide more than anybody's is is Celeborn. Yes. What if we took a different? Maybe you know this episode would be told slightly differently, not narrated, but. Told, seen from sort of Celeborn's experience because he's in a number of these things and he's probably auxiliary to several other things, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so maybe it's uh, maybe the thing here would be a different, you know, different way of having the story unfold would be maybe you know with Celeborn as sort of the point of view character, but you know, you know what I mean? It's like we're kind yeah. of following him around. He's not narrating. Yeah. But he's kind of the the guy in in this. I don't know. That could be a way to. And it's yeah. a character that I think people would be invested in. Yeah, I'm thinking about. Hey, that's funny. Kelborn uh, is a character that people are invested in. I love that. But I love the fact that that sentence can be uttered in the context of some <laughs> film, right? It's like. A, a sentence that you would be tempted to say said nobody ever, right? Well, uh, uh, but, I did mean but, it but in, on both in sides. Our context, right? In I our mean context. it on both sides. In fact, as I said it, I was thinking to myself, on both sides, which is he's a wimp. You know, I mean, it's like you're right. invested in him, even if, even if the investment is he's a wimp, and you know, anyway, right? He's right. well known <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. talked about frequently. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's an interesting option here because uh, I'm thinking, uh, I, I mean, I agree. Nick says, of course, he'd have to contact all the plot lines in a way that makes sense. Right. So I'm kind would. of going down. Fingolfin being crowned. So the 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 abdication of Mithros happens in episode two. So that's not happening here. Um, what we're seeing is kind of the aftermath. We're seeing like Fingolfin acting as High King of the Noldor for the first time, really. Um, 
so that's great. Uh, that I mean, so he's there. Kelborn is there at the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and by the way, I don't personally have much invested uh, as to like when Kelleborn moves about. I know that there was, uh, 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 Marie, you had mentioned a desire to make sure Kelleborn gets back to Doriath early enough to spend some quality time with Galadriel. And I agree with that. I don't see any reason to think, I, if we wanted him to be there super early, I think we could have packed him off back in episode two. Um, he has to meet, he has to be there to meet the Noldor in episode one, but I don't think he's got a job necessarily uh, up there in Mithrim, even in episode two. I mean, he could be he could be setting off for Doriath at the end of episode one if we wanted to, um, but I don't think we have to. We can keep him around here and use him because if he is still there, then he'd see Fingolfin, right? So Trish, as you're suggesting, we could show that from Celeborn's perspective, mm-hmm. which would be kind of interesting actually, showing it from an outsider point of view. Right, mm-hmm. somebody kind of looking in from the outside and watching Fingolfin interact with the other, uh, you know, the other leaders of the Noldorm. That would be interesting, right? Uh, he's, obviously, you know, he's connected to Cirdan, so it would make sense that he would be at the, you know, he could be actually at the Havens, you know? or or at least could hear from Cirdan. I mean, or could he's, hear from Cirdan. Yeah, he was with Cirdan before. Cirdan right. might have left earlier. Somebody's got to take off. I mean, I don't think both Cirdan and Celeborn are going to hang out with the Noldor indefinitely. But if Cirdan <laughs> took, you know, so Cirdan and Celeborn arrived there together in episode one. If Cirdan took off because he's like, hey, I gotta, I gotta go help my people rebuild the Havens and stuff. So I'm, I'm out. And Celeborn's like, all right, I'll hang here and try to you know, do a little ambassadorial thing. Um, yeah, so so Cirdan's gone. So it would be perfectly natural for Kelborn to want to check in with Cirdan, right? And mm-hmm, just, you know, mm-hmm. on the way to Doriath, but for him to be like, hey, all right, what's going on? So that's fine. Um, uh, the beginning of the Caranthir-Angrod feud, if we kept him in Mithrim until he could be there or... I mean, would he be allowed to be present? Maybe he would. I mean, I don't know. Um, he could at least kind of know the... Um, so that happens before Angrod and Caliborn go to Doriath, right? No, after. Um, oh, so after. That's, that's, okay. that's the result of Angrod's trip to Doriath, and then he comes oh, back okay. bearing Thingol's message. Um, okay. But... Um, yeah, no, Mariel, he's not like officially an ambassador. Like, remember, he's not when he's there in Mithrim at the beginning of episode three, Thingol doesn't even know. It's Angrod who has seen Thingol and come back, right? So uh, uh, Thingol, Thingol and Celeborn have never communicated. So he's not an ambassador in the sense of like being charged with authority by Thingol, right, in order to represent Thingol's uh, uh, interests with the Noldor. That's not Celeborn's job. Like, he might be able to do that at some point, um, but he's not done that because he's not even, he's not, he's not talked to Thingol since he met the Noldor. He's just still there, right? Um, so, you know, I mean, my thought on this is, too, that it's very, it's very nuanced, you know, this thing of having it be through care. You know, in other words, I, this would be, you know, obviously it's the script writers that would have to do this, but it would be sort of almost like a subtle thing, you know, where like Kyrdan's in every scene sort of thing, or there's, I don't know, you know, the, or we get to listen in on his conversations. You know, he's right. the one that's doing the talking to various people, you know what I'm saying? that, um, right. You know, in one respect, although he may not be aware of this, but Aru may be aware of this, is he's a king in training as much as Galadriel is a queen in training, right? Right, right. Um, right. 
and I do think that's a I would like to have that be sort of our underlying acknowledgement is you know he's he's a king in right. training basically right. so anyway I just you know and we're going to be seeing him later you know and I would mm -hmm. love if mm -hmm. when the company when the fellowship gets to Lothlorien it's like there's Kelleborn and the viewers have this history you know they've got this backstory now on Kelleborn that's really awesome anyhow yeah it's an so, interesting idea because the more I think about it the more I like it with almost all of these options Nick is right that Kelleborn yeah, well, so Nick is right that Celeborn has been invested um, with Thingol's authority in a more general sense as his herald. Yeah, mm -hmm. he, he is. I mean, so therefore you can, I, I can easily imagine Celeborn kind of taking it on himself, right? He's there, he's seeing what's happening. He's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to stay on the spot. Uh, be, rather than going back and talking to Thingol about this, I'm just going to hang here, right? Because I can represent, I can sort of, represent Thingol, but he's not going to put himself forward either. He's not, Kelborn isn't the kind of character, I think, who's going to be forceful there. Right. Um, right. You know, he's not going to be, what he's going to be is he's going to be sitting back and watching, and he's going to be uh, doing careful observations. Remember that in this season, thinking of our theme for the season, thinking of Kelborn's overall story, especially obviously his relationship with Galadriel, Kelborn is going to be, in particular from the Sindar side, the primary force for reconciliation, right? He is going to be the voice of Sindar reconciling with the Noldor, right? In his forgiveness, of Galadriel and going beyond merely forgiving her and being understanding of her, but helping her to forgive herself, him going out on a limb, right, and not betraying her con her trust, right, uh, not not betraying her her confidence to to uh, Thingol, right. He's going out on a limb, um, and where and the direction, like the limb he's going out on, is towards reconciliation, is towards peace. So. Him remaining in Mithrim to watch and learn and just try to figure out, like, what are the issues here? How can we move forward? Like, here they are, these Noldor, right? They're here. Um, what do we do? And how do we, um, how do we, how do we, you know, move forward? How do we, what, one, one, one of the things I can see, for instance, so he, here's the reason I kind of like having him still be there when Angrod comes back. Angrod comes back bearing Thingol's message. And Thingol's message is a little bit clueless, honestly, right? I mean, there is there is truth in the response to him, right, that says he gives us leave to 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 establish realms where his authority does not extend, right? Um, he wouldn't have any sovereignty at all if we hadn't bailed him out. They're kind of right. I mean, that's rude, but it's correct, right? Um, and Thingol's approach to them is haughty, right? Beleriand is mine and it belongs to all of us and you can live where I give you permission to live. Like that's, that's, I, I, I think we should have Celeborn watching this. So like he hears Thingol's message through Angrod, right? And Celeborn is like, oh, that's, that's bad move, Thingol, right? Like that was a misstep. Um, you shouldn't have done that. Um, and, um, uh, so he can, and then he sees the fight, right? He sees the 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 feud begin between Karanthir and Angrod, and then he comes back and he tells Thingol about this, and he's like, Thingol, all right, uh, that wasn't great, 
and let me tell you about how it went down. Let me tell you about these divisions that I've been seeing. And there's a lot to this situation that, that you're not understanding, right? Um, it's not just you versus the outsiders, right? It's like the outsiders are divided among themselves and it's really complex and we need to be uh, uh, a little more helpful here. Um, anyway, so, um, so I think that there's... Um, Exactly, Nick. He has done a lot of observation. And that's where I, I think, you know, showing him, and I know like, this doesn't make him exactly an action hero, right? To just have <laughs> him watching everything uh, and kind of absorbing that and being prepared for wise conclusions. But the thing to me that is most interesting is that this is all going to get translated into personal relationship, right? Mm -hmm. The outcome of what Celeborn is going to learn by observing the Noldor is not going to be political. It's going to be personal, right? It's going to be his relationship with Galadriel. Um, he's going to be prepared to understand her and right. to understand what she's saying and what she's going through and to be able to counsel her best. And, you know, there's um, some vice versa to that, too. If he's, if he's um, confiding in her, his stuff, she's going to see him... Yes. It's going to yes. bind her to him. You know what I mean? She's going to like be like, whoa, this is a guy worthy of me. <laughs> right. <laughs> kind of right. thing. Exactly. Now, yeah, it, I have yeah, a side yeah. note. I have a side note. Um, I think it's appropriate to say it here because as you were talking, it, it occurred to me. I mean, Caliborn is really a scholar. Um, I think more than anything, you know, if you think about the fact that he took over Rivendell after Elrond left mm -hmm. and whatnot, mm -hmm. this is our proto Elrond. Not only that, but I'm wondering if perhaps in the future, Celeborn will be to Elrond as Melian is to Galadriel. Mentor-ish. Interesting. Sort of part of the training. Isn't that interesting? So we could see in the way Celeborn mm. operates here, yeah. it's going to be something that because I was thinking as you were talking, I'm thinking, gosh, you know, that's really Elrond-ish what you're saying here. And I'm like, mm -hmm. wait a minute. Hey, this could be. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that's that is really interesting. Um and I had not really thought of that connection. Of course, I always obviously enormous formative relationship for Elrond uh not only of course is Mythros, oh, sure. Maglor, Absolutely. Um but also obviously Gilgalad, you know, with right. whom he was working for a really long time. Um but, I was actually yeah. thinking that would be a period of time, perhaps, when he does come across Celeborn, is while he's he was Harold, he was Gilgalad's Harold, right? Yeah, 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 he was. Which exactly. is interesting, so, given that Celeborn yeah. is Stingle's Harold, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So. he he is he is with he is with for a long time, but yeah, uh, to it does open up that possibility exactly, Trish, especially that last parallel you were just suggesting that Elrond himself you know, sort of, I was about to say young Elrond, young Elrond, when he was <laughs> the centuries young old, Elrond. <laughs> uh, young Elrond, uh, you know, when he kind of takes up his role with Gilgalad, right, is, you know, might see himself as trying to be to Gilgalad what Celeborn was well, to Thingol. Celeborn was to Thingol, yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. way down the line, but... Um, yeah, and you know, like Nick says, Elrond does marry his daughter. <laughs> right, exactly. So, you know, <laughs> exactly. He's there's obviously there's that father-in-law thing going on. He's obviously known to the family, right? Yeah, yeah and so exactly. I, you know, I'm thinking of it in terms of Elrond as a young man, young elf, not as a mm. child, because he'll have, you know, his own, you know, the Feanorian 
yeah, dies. Yeah. But when he becomes, you know, an adult, I guess we'd say, like you said, when he becomes Harold of Gil. Anyway, so it's ways, it's a ways down the line. But this is the kind of thing. It's like, well, if we keep this in our minds now, that could inform this episode. Or yeah, the, no, they, I. I like that a lot. Uh, let me just mention a couple things quick. First thing, a couple of people are asking about the language barrier issue. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about episode three and four first, then we're going to talk about the language barrier because I don't. if we start off talking about that, we might not get to the episode. So we're talking about the episodes first, but we, I promise we'll get back to that. Um, so just, just to kind of send that out to folks who are, who are eager to talk about it. Um, we haven't forgotten. Secondly, um, just to address, uh, Nick, I know you were a little bit concerned about, like, obviously, Kelborn, if we're going to just follow Kelborn, he can't be at absolutely everything. Um, as, you know, Nick was saying, one of, the, one of the logical consequences of this would mean that Angrod and Thingol's meeting in Doriath would happen off screen completely. Um, we could do that, but I'm not sure that we need to be that strict about it. I think that... Um, if we just have Kel, you know, we don't have to do a sort of edgy, you know, Kelleborn point of view where like he's always on camera during the entire episode or something like that. We, we don't have to do anything like that. Um, I think we we just we sort of he's going to be the the central recurring character, you know, the the, the central character through the whole episode. Um, yeah, and we and, can see his reactions. You know, even yeah. if he wasn't at something, he we can see his reactions to that from somebody telling him about it or something, you know? Yeah. So we can cut away from him a couple times, you know, that's okay. Um, we, 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 I think we're going to at least want one Doriath scene anyway, because we're going to want to have to establish Galadriel on her own. Right. Um, I think we need to establish Galadriel because we just saw her having some kind of crisis. What happened? Right. What's going on with her? Um, so, a Doriath scene in which Engrod arrives, right? Um, and Engrod is going to obviously do two things, right? He's going to talk to Thingol, right? And and sort of get Thingol's message for the Noldor. And then he's going to talk to Galadriel and be like, uh, yo, sis, what's up with you? Like, you all right? <laughs> what, what happened? You, you, you know, you came here. We never heard back from you. You know, what's going on? Um, so, um, uh, so, th and that gives us an opportunity to, you know, whether or not they have a long conversation, that gives us an opportunity to establish what's going on with Galadriel, right? Though she's not going to be totally forthcoming to Angrod, right? Um, and we can we can establish Angrod's uh, relationship with Thingol, or his message from Thingol. Now, how do we want to play Thingol's message? I've said that it's, I, I mean, I think it's, ill-advised. I, I, I don't think that Thingol handles this situation brilliantly. Um, uh, I think that's a little bit of understatement, but I, I you know, I, but how do we want to handle that? Do we want to make him look? I guess what I'm saying is how bad do we want to make Thingol look? Um, one of the things I think that we would want to do is to have Karanthir's interpretation of Ang of Angrod's version of Thingol's words be more extreme, be a little bit inappropriate, right? Um, so um, I, I think that, um, I don't know. Um, I want to have some shades here, you know? I want to have Thingol, Karanthir's misunderstanding 
Thingol and misconstruing certainly what Angrod is doing. Um, but there's substance to it as well. But let's just start with Thingol himself, right? Um, yeah, Nick says, at the very least, he's making decisions in absence of enough information instead of doing what Celeborn is doing. Yes, yes. Um, Tony's asking, you know, are there some elves that are displaced by the Noldor coming in so that Thingol is at least a little justified? Uh, we didn't have a lot of elves living up in Mithrim. I've been resistant to that. Um, but we... I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much time we want to spend in Doriath. Um, at the very least, Thingol is going to fear that they're going to come and displace, you know, Sindar that are scattered around. Um, yeah. 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 No, that's fine. I'm not concerned about this as a consequence of my resistance to having elves in uh, Mithrim, Nick. I, I think that's fine. Um, I still like not having elves in Mithrim. There does not have to be large-scale displacement in order for Thingol to be concerned that there's going to be. Especially since, especially when it's made clear to him, to Thingol, that we're talking about a very large group of Noldor densely camped together in Mithrim for now. Right. That is, it's going to be clear. They're going to spread out. They're going to want to spread out. This is not it's this is not just, well, if they stay up in Mithrim, there won't be any problems. They're not going to stay in Mithrim. This is not a permanent arrangement. Right. Uh, they are living in a they're, they are living in a camp. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, so what does he think? What is he worried about? Why does Thingol respond the way that he does? Is it, remember, he's got no context at all. He, Thingol, was BFFs with Finway, you'll remember. Finway's gone, so he's going to hear that, presumably. Someone's going to bear him the message when he hears anything, or does he even know that? He's got to know that. If he thinks his think best he's... friend Finway has come <laughs> home, then he's going to want to go find him. Yeah, he's he has to know. He has to know. Okay. Although it it does it does raise the question of <clears throat> what is the mechanic for news of events that took place across the sea to to kind of disseminate throughout Middle Earth. Yeah. Um, it are the Noldor notorious it's, gossips? It's it's got to be it's got to come from the Noldor. It can't come from anywhere else. It can't I, come I from anywhere else unless. Melian has some kind of insights about no, but I mean, depending, yeah, Morgoth can spread rumors, right? You know, and Morgoth has told them so. Like Sauron acting on, you know, Morgoth's suggestions can spread rumors um, about stuff that Morgoth saw or stories that Morgoth makes up and lies that he wants to spread. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, no, Marie, I agree. We need to establish. The Noldor party line, right? That that baseline needs to be established to Thingol right away. 
Um, and I like Marie's synopsis. Marie's synopsis of the basic Noldor party line is, we came to Beleriand to fight Morgoth. Morgoth committed horrible atrocities in Valinor. Finway is dead and so are the trees. Um, and remember, Where along the way does um, Thingol's antipathy for the Noldor start? Has it started already? Well, see, that's the thing. He's edgy already. I mean, his yeah. response to them is not hostile, but cautious, uh, somewhere between cautious and worried, basically. You know, I, mean, I could see finding out about Finway's death being, um, in spite of the fact that Noldor is saying, you know, Morgoth did it, that he's, you know, and ends up like adding this to the things he's blaming the Noldor for. Well, if you hadn't bloody blah, you know what I mean? It's, right, it wouldn't right. make sense. I mean, we're beginning to see him not make sense. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to lose one king could be an accident. To lose two kings begins to yeah. look like carelessness. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't. Um, I never thought I would be doing an, a Noldor adapted Oscar Wilde quotation, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, um, yeah, Tony's suggesting that he thinks that Thingol is at least partly fearful of the Noldor's military power. Like, they are clearly super, if the Noldor turned against the Sindar, they could stomp them. Mm -hmm. Um, their, their armor is way better. They, I mean, they're just, they are more powerful from a military standpoint. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah. Yeah, and Nick, I mean, that's what we were kind of talking about. Is Finway and Elway were close friends, so that's exactly. why I was thinking he'd have an emotional reaction, and he right. could just like illogically have that be part of what he's got against the Noldor, you know. And I guess make this logical is, sense, but yeah, this is for me what I'm trying to wrap my head around when it comes to understanding what happens in the Silmarillion, right? Because Thingol, part of me wants to say the first option, right? The first, um, the first reaction. Thingol's number one association with the Noldor has to be Finway, right? Has to be oh these these are the people of my best friend whom I haven't seen in millennia, right? Um, so if some you know, when somebody comes to Thingol and is like the Noldor are here, his very first response surely has to be Finway. Has Finway come? Finway. Finway, and then and then he's gonna hear, oh no, tragedy! Finway was murdered. Morgoth killed him, and they've come to seek vengeance. And so it has why, something to do with uh, Feanor and the Silmarils. <laughs> well, so why why is if that's what he hears? If he hears that Finway has been murdered by Morgoth, and they've come to and the Noldor have come to you know, and his boys have come back to Beleriand in order to to take vengeance for his murder. How is Thingol's first reaction not awesome? Yeah. Like, I'm yeah, with you guys. True. Like, that's right. awful. He's my Let's best Let's go get friend. him. Yeah. yeah. Um, how can I help? Like, that's not his reaction. We have an Iago at court that could, that could somehow twist the truth to Thingol and implicate the Noldor in yeah. the murder of Finway? If we need a, a, a bad egg in Thingol's court, we always have Cyros, obviously. Oh, that's but, true. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, it is a good question. Why? Why wouldn't he be? Why wouldn't he be totally supportive? Uh, um, and he doesn't. He would. He he has no prior experience with with 
Fenway's children. Right. He knows nothing about Fanor, right? Fanor is not even a name to him. I mean, he might not even know the name. So, you know, he's still presumably by many called Kuru Fenway. So, you know, like Fanor is a nickname. Uh, And in any case, it's, um, yeah. So should we we make him initially supportive? Well, see, okay, I'm trying to work this thing. Well, eventually he's going to find out about the burning of the ship. So maybe he is initially supportive. He doesn't know at this point about that, right? But remember, when Kierden was sleuthing at the end of season three, his conclusion slash assumption was that the ships were burned by orcs. Right. Right, that this this was work of the enemy. Any reason to think he will have found out better by now? Now, I agree, Nick, that he, by episode three, he's met Goadriel, so they know that something is up, right? But, I, but I'm not talking about that. I'm, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going backwards here because I'm trying, to, I'm trying to work my way back up to Thingol's message through Angrod to the rest of the Noldor. But how do we get there is what I'm trying to figure out. So somebody, you know, Kiernan and Celeborn see the Noldor at the end of season three, right? They send a runner, right? They find out who this is. They send a runner to Thingol right away because he needs to know this right away, right? They send uh, some red shirt off to go tell Thingol, hey, the Noldor are here. So all that he's, so, and maybe they've heard the Noldor party line, right? They've met the Noldor and they're like, okay, so the the thing that, that Marie was saying, Right, they've come to fight Morgoth. Morgoth murdered Finway. He destroyed the trees. They've come to fight him. Right, that gets sent off to Thingol right away. So we need his reaction to that, right? Um, and then, does that change? You know, do we? Sh- then Galadriel comes. Right then, Galadriel comes to his court. So he still has to. Celeborn hasn't come back yet, right? Círdan went back with his people because his people have still been living on ships, right? Since their lands were destroyed, so they're still refugees, right? So he's gonna go back with his people quickly uh, to and start, re, you know, start working on rebuilding the havens. Um. So Thingol's next news, I guess, is Galadriel. Galadriel shows up in episode like episode two ish um and has her moment with melian and now melian has this sense of um um melian has this sense of uh uh you know that something dark is but but i think that melian's suspicions and concerns don't happen until she meets galadriel i think it's when she's Mm -hmm. looking into galadriel's eyes like galadriel is very disturbed by this. And then we talk about Galadriel no. having the same sort of experience with Melian that she she puts on the fellowship, that yeah, same sort exactly. of soul searching exactly. thing. Yeah, there's a there is a darkness behind her, exactly. Um and Melian doesn't see it. So that means prior to Galadriel's arrival, all he knows is that they're Noldor and he knows the Noldor party line. And I don't see any reason he has to disbelieve it. He doesn't know these people but they're the children of his best friend who are coming with news that to to take vengeance for the murder of his best friend their father what's not to like right? tony has the idea if what if kieran takes some of the Meldor with him to help in rebuilding of the havens and that's where he learns about the ship burnings i don't know 
Well, and I'm kind of thinking, like, I think it will be more dramatic <clears throat> if if there's a if there's a turn, right? That if he goes yeah. from being supportive yeah. to not supportive. Exactly. So, I, yeah. I I I vote for that for sure. Yeah. So, so he'd be thrilled to start with, and then right. We, and we the other this. good thing, the other good thing here is that we don't need to get him. The first, the Angrod's delivery of the message, that's after Galadriel, right? So we can afford, in, essentially, to have Thingol's initial positive reaction be self-contained, right? It doesn't affect, you know, the overall plot in that way. So. We would have to then work, we'd have to work that reaction, the positive reaction, back into episode two, I guess, or maybe not. Maybe maybe we bring it, we don't, we don't bring it up until the conversation with Angrod. He could say to Angrod something like, "When news first reached me that you know the uh, the children, you know the the children and grandchildren of my best and closest friend came to take vengeance on uh, on his murderer," you know, I was. I was all in favor. I thought that sound, you know, I was, I was completely behind you. Now we are troubled, right? We are troubled. Uh, so what's the trouble? He doesn't know because Caliborn's not come back. Caliborn knows Thingol does not yet know that there's division among the Noldor. That he won't have gotten necessarily from Goadriel. right? There's a darkness behind her. Melian is going to be able to tell that like there is guilt on her soul, right? So f f the conclusion I think that Thingol would draw from Melian's warnings is the Noldor, the Noldor did something bad. They did something bad. Were they actually exiled? Maybe he doesn't go that far in his speculations, but they've got a record. I don't know what it is. They did something, and I don't know what it is. Um, and so therefore, I'm going to like be on a, I'm going to operate on a trust, but verify basis with the Noldor because as Tony's pointing out, they are also intimidating, right? Um, initially he would have no reason to be worried that the Noldor are going to come and attack him. Who would do that? Why on earth would that ever happen? That's got to be completely out of, you know, inconceivable to the Sindar right. that such a thing could occur. Um, and yet, once he finds out that they've got a record, right, that they've already committed some terrible act or other, um, now he's like, well, okay, so we've got these people with a history of we don't know what who are heavily armed and, and maybe we should be careful, right? Um, also, do you think do you think Thingol would think it's weird that he's not meeting Finway's son, but in fact meeting his grandchildren? I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, wait a second. So you say Finway's dead, and you know you're his grandchildren. Where's, where's his children at? The yeah, the first indicator. So Feanor's dead, which is fine, right? I mean, like that could have. They've already had a battle with Morgoth, and he was killed by Balrogs, right? I mean, could happen to anybody. So that's, um. That just sounds double extra tragic, right? Oh, my my close friend's eldest well, son has already been slain in battle with his with his murderers. Like that's terrible. Um, that doesn't sound bad, but here's the thing that sounds bad, right? Finarfin sounds bad. Angrod. So 
Angrod is going to show up. Maybe Goadriel's already said this. Maybe maybe Goadriel probably would say this, right? Goadriel would have introduced herself, right? You know, she would have come back and she would have been like, um, "Hi, I'm your great niece, actually, right? Um, this is her approach to Thingol. So he knows that some of the Noldor are closely related to him, right? Um, so a question he would probably ask Goadriel and would certainly ask Angrod, so introduce me to your dad. I want to meet the guy who married my niece, right? Uh, I, and did she come, right? Is she here too? Is always daughter with you? Um, right. And they're going to be like, awkward. Um, yeah, dad didn't make it. He didn't come. He stayed back in Valinor. Um, that would be suspicious. I mean, that would be like, huh? And what? that's going to be the first indicator that there's yeah. a split, right? That there's yeah. tension among the Noldor. As much as they try to mask it, um, to explain, I mean, that's, when you combine that with the fact that there's some darkness that lies behind them, um, he can begin to, um, he can begin to, to say, so, uh, yeah. By the way, will this vagueness and and sort of you know ambiguity and not really wanting to like tell stuff straight is that going to be actually a strategy? Is that going to be a conscious strategy of the Fanorians? Are they going to actually say sometime? Yeah. They've got to. You know, we need to not. Do we let have on. that conversation? Yeah, that's right. We we um we we haven't included that. Does that conversation need to happen? Or oh, you're on here. Or does that happen in the context of the current theory Angrod blow? Oh, that could be. That could be. Um, At some point, I think there needs to be like an actual dialogue, right? Where they yeah. consciously say. Where they say, all right, let's, secretive. Yeah, let's keep this under wraps, folks. Mm -hmm. I mean, on the one hand, maybe they don't need to say it. Maybe they just do it because, you know. It would be the natural thing for them to do. Yes. Um, Angrod, so. Yeah, no, so. Phil, I agree with you that um, I'm not saying that there is no plausible reason why Finarfin might not have stayed back. Like, there could be a perfectly natural explanation of that, right? Um, why 100% of the Noldor didn't come and why Finarfin stayed back in order to, you know, uh, be the, you know, sort of remain as king of the Noldor who stayed behind for some perfectly good and constructive reason. That's totally possible. But the thing is, thing, this is Thingo and Melian we're talking about here, right? Thingo and, like, Melian, seriously, Melian has to be way better than a polygraph. You can't lie to Melian and her not know that you're lying. That is not possible. Surely not possible. So he can say, he could say true things, he could say evasive things, and they're going to know. Like, he's not telling us everything. She's going to know anyway, Right. So and he, he can just say, like, oh, yeah, dad stayed behind with some folks. He's uh, ruling in Tyrion right now, the remnant of the people. Um, and um, um, and make it sound fine. But she's going to be able to tell that there's something behind that, that there's more to that story than he said. Um, does he admit that she's dead? Well, I think he'd have to lie otherwise. And I don't think we should have Engrod lie to Thingol. Um, he can withhold information, but he's not going to lie. Um, so I think he would say that she died. Um, 
uh, and again, Melian is going to be like, uh, there's, there's something going on here. So from the conversation with Galadriel, Thingol and Melian get the first vague idea that there's something going on, uh, that there's some, that there's, that there's this vague darkness that, you know, the, the, the Noldor have a, have a past, um, from Angrod, they will begin to gather because Galadriel's going to clam up real quick. Right. I mean, it's her first meeting with Melian when she has this crisis of conscience. And from then on, she's not going to want to talk about anything. Right. She's going to be isolating herself, I think, primarily. Um, so they're not going to get anything out of her. Um, and, but Angrod is going to have to explain some stuff. Uh, so I think that this conversation can happen there and they're going to tell. So so what after they talk to Angrod, what? conclusions do Thingol and Melian come to? They know the Noldor are guilty of something. They know that there seems to be some kind, there was a split. Some of the Noldor stayed home and some of the Noldor came, right? That they know for sure. Um, do they get any kind of an inkling of the split between some of the Noldor who came and the Feanorians? I don't think... If Fanor's name comes up, the way that Angrod said, because remember, Angrod was the angry guy to begin with we had in season three. So um, uh, he was the one who wanted to cross the Hell Caraxa for vengeance, uh, uh, remember, if I'm remembering that correctly. So, um, yeah. So if he even says the name Fanor, Melian is going to is going to twig that, like, there's there's serious bad will there. Right. Um he need only utter Fanor's name for her to be able to tell that he loathes Fanor, um, that Angrod has a personal beef with Fanor. Um, so, but I don't know that we need to go there because again, they're not even going to know, um, Thingol and Melian aren't, aren't going to know enough to even inquire about yeah, that's true. that, you know, anything like that. So they're going to be focused on the division between the Noldor who stayed and the Noldor who came. Um, so that, so they're going to know there's something in, dark in the past. They're going to know that there was some kind of division and they're going to maybe suspect if he talks about his mom, she's going to sense the grief there. So she died recently. She's going to know that Melian's going to know that his grief for Arwen that there's grief and there's also anger there and they don't know why. Um, hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. Um, okay. So what do you guys think? Do you think we should have Arwen, Arwen's death come up? Should that, it's gotta come up. It's gotta yeah, come up. Yeah, I think, I think it has to. So that has to be another data point that they have. And the data point is she died recently. He can tell that she, Melian can tell that Angrod is still grieving her. It happened relatively recently and that there's anger. He's mad. 
because of it. Yeah, um, and that should be, and th- th- I suppose those things probably should be all suspicious, right? <laughs> I, you know, I get, I guess the Sindar living in Middle Earth maybe aren't unaccustomed to tragedy and and loss and death um, because they live next door to Morgoth. Right. But it should be surprising that folks coming um, uh, from across the sea have have dealt with these things already right. before even arriving. Exactly. So there's lots of – the fact that he's grieving her and that he's angry about it doesn't have to give away the game right away, right? Because they know their first set of data included Morgoth committed atrocities in Valinor, right? Yeah. Um, so they could, and he's not going to want to talk, Angrod's not going to want to talk about it. So they could draw the false conclusion at first, um, Morgoth killed her, right? Morgoth committed some tragedy. Tony says, does the, um, does the death of Olway come up? Thingol's brother. Yeah, that kind of ought to come up, right? Um, but if that comes up, if he says, yeah, so my mom and your brother, my grandfather, were all are all dead, um, they're going to ask him straight up, how did that happen? Did Morgoth kill them? And he, like, how can they push him to a place where he can get out of that without lying? I mean, I guess he can just play the, like, the grief is still too fresh for still, words card. Still too near to me, yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't want to talk about it. Um, yeah. Marielle says if he knows Olway is dead, he's going to wonder why the Teleri didn't come over for vengeance too. Yeah. Well, Marielle, hang on. He doesn't know they didn't, right? Because there were Teleran ships. He, he, Kierden knows those are Teleran ships, right, that were burned. So there was clearly Teleri involvement in transporting them over. But what happened to them? Are they still? Yeah, that, are, they, are there some here? Did they all die? Did they go back? That should be, those that should be even go back. That should be even more suspicious, shouldn't it? Where? Hey, where am I? Where are my uh, kin from? Where are my kin, who are also yeah. doubtless joining with you? Since Olway and Finway were both slain in Valinor, then clearly, like uh, both of our peoples united, have come to seek vengeance, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, you'd think they would be. You, you'd think that that would be initially. Oh, you came over on the Teleri ships. Great. Where right. are my? Yeah, where are my kin? Uh, they're not here. The other next right. obvious question is: So, um, where's uh, Manway? Tolkas <laughs> <Right. laughs> uh, come over with you? Uh, does, is, uh, right? Uh, is yeah. that uh, is uh, is like Aonwe on the next ship, or how is this yeah. working out exactly? Um, it's true. That's true. You know, Mariel actually inadvertently reminds, has kind of made me an honest woman here, in the sense that she's reminded us just as we were talking that he was one of the big three, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I I notice just I have to confess that I noticed that I'm already thinking of single down the line right now and we right. I need to not be doing that. He he still right. is one of the and in that in that context, he like Melian would be seeing his own signs, you know, and getting his own intuitions, you know, uh of something's rotten in the state of Noldor kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 Okay. All of this is now good uh, uh Mike uh 
Amy's Revenge from the discussion board is reminding me that they spent a lot of effort on the discussion board coming up with how the Noldor handle questions and answers. That's great. Um, and I'd love to I'd love to hear some of your uh, concrete suggestions about that. Um, and I, we don't have to reinvent the wheel with all that. The reason I'm thinking this stuff through right now is I'm what I'm this is all oriented towards one thing trying to understand Thingol's message through Angrod to the rest of the Noldor. Why does he say it? Does he say that? And why does he say that in that way? Um, why is he not more welcoming and friendly? Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, Nick, it, it, it is important to remember Thingol's position as one of the three ambassadors, and also let's not forget the only one of the uh, all of the Sindar who is going to understand the full import of Morgoth destroyed the trees, right? Because the rest of them have never seen the trees, he has. Um, so he's going to understand that. Um, Yeah, Mariel, you're right. Mariel says it's a mix not only of his suspicions that there's obviously there's I mean, one thing that is going to be glaringly clear from the, the minute he they meet Galadriel and going to be firmly reinforced by his conversation with Angrod, there is stuff here that we don't know about, right? There is something going on here and we don't have all the information. That is going to be very clear to him. Um uh to both of them, to him and to Millian. Um, but also, Marielle says, his sense of superiority over these young whippersnappers. Yeah, it's true. There's only one, I mean, Fingolfin is this, is the, you know, the senior statesman now, not just High King, generationally, he's like the eldest, uh, and most senior of all of the Noldor, um, and he is Fingol's best friend's kid, right? Uh, so he is going to have some kind of, um, some kind of sense that like the Noldor are not just like peers to be, but they're like, you know, kids, right? This is the younger generation that is going to need to be shepherded as much. And I know that that's not, that gap is not going to be among elves that wouldn't be as severe as among humans. Right. Um, I mean, after all, one generation of elves, if you think of the age proportion, right, between one generation and another, I mean, for much of their lives, one generation of humans is way more than, you know, when 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 a younger generation gets to be half the age of the generation in front of them, that's a major milestone. Right. Um, you know, my kids certainly are still nowhere near half my age yet. Starting to get there, but they're not there yet, right? Whereas for elves, you know, 10,000 years down the road, the age gap between the generations, you know, can look much, much smaller. So I don't think it's necessarily going to be that same sense of, of um, you know, oh, you you guys are young and immature children. Let me, let me you know, take over and advise you. Um it, 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 that impulse, I think, wouldn't be as extreme among elves as it would be among humans. But nevertheless, he would see himself as like, okay, you know, I'm not your grandfather, but I am your grandfather's best friend. Like, I'm, I am your, naturally, I'm your superior. Um, uh, so that that makes 
that makes some sense. Um, yeah, Nick, even the fact that he's a Quivian and elf, I mean, that's rare. Um, uh, and Nick, I agree, there may be some Quivian and uh, elves among the Noldor, but not very many at all. Um, so that by itself is kind of a is kind of a status is kind of a status thing, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, okay. So that would also explain his, one of the things that uh, the Noldor seem to kind of bristle at when they hear from Thingol is what sounds like a kind of paternalistic tone. And I think if we put it in that context, if we make him being not snooty, but paternalistic, that makes it easier, right? He's treating them like, ah, I shall look after you. You know, since you are the children and grandchildren of my best friend, I shall care for you as if you were my own children and grandchildren. And they're like, dude, come on now. Right? <laughs> who, are, who are you? <laughs> right? We've never met you before. And we're perfectly capable of taking care of ourselves. Um, yeah. yeah. I think that's not a bad idea, actually. Um, so that would be one way to help. You're not the boss of me. The, yeah, you are not the boss of me. Exactly. Um, Nick points out also, and none of them are married to an Ainu. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and also, yeah, he's got that trump card for sure, doesn't he? Exactly. Especially, and we have to keep in mind, Thingol has been changed by that, right? I mean, right. he has been, when he emerges from the thicket with Melian after their, you know, long honeymoon in, you know, stasis, he's changed. He's different. Um, even than he was before. So that is yet another reason in which he... Right even if it's totally benevolent and even appropriate seeing, uh, you know, and seeing himself as their uh, superior to them in wisdom. You, and say, you may have been living with the Ainu, but I've been really living with the Ainu. Exactly. You've been in Valinor, <laughs> but you know, yeah. You don't know, you don't know the Ainu like I do. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, no, that agreed. Agreed. So, to Thingol, it would he could see himself as being both generous and kindly, and they could take his overtures as being standoffish and and um, snooty, and that would make that would make perfect sense. Uh, okay, that's good. I'm feeling a lot more comfortable about yeah, me too. Thingol and where Thingol starts here with his relationship with the Noldar. Okay. Yeah, it tur turns out to be not quite so 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 complicated as we thought. There's actually there's actually lots of reason for him to be suspicion. Yeah, exactly. For him to be suspicious. Like pretty early actually, yeah. Right. Yeah. Like like there's like like I I think it's actually a a pretty rapid decline from from the initial sort of elation Hooray! and enthusiasm. Yes. Like, here. like like there's a, there's actually like like pretty ample it's a pretty fast decline actually okay so what about this nope this nope this nope yeah. uh, none of that uh, seems good there's a problem here yeah yeah exactly and honestly the fact these two things go together really well the fact that he can see that there is there's trouble there's guilt there's concealment he's going to be aware of that not knowing what it is but he's going to be aware that that's all happening. And so that's got to, 
then feed directly into the whole sense of superiority, right? Like, well, well, I'm glad there's a grown-up in the room now. But, you know, obviously you guys have not been doing a good job, right? Of the, you know, now it's a good thing you've got somebody to look to look out for you now because good grief. Obviously, you guys have been making a mess of things ever since ever since Finway died. Uh, so uh, I'm glad there's now a mature person to help to guide you. Um. Yeah, no, I, that I, you can easily see how all of those things would sort of fit together. Um, yeah, and I think by doing this, we can avoid giving our audience, giving our viewers the impression, and this is the thing that I dislike most about Thingol's message at the beginning, as it's depicted in the Silmarillion, is that it sounds merely standoffish. Like, the Noldor find it cold, and it does sound cold. Um, it's easy, I think, for Silmarillion readers to get Thingol's a jerk from the beginning. I mean, from pretty close to the beginning here, certainly from the beginning of his relationship with the Noldor. And I don't think we want to do that. I don't think we want to permit th that sort of simple conclusion right away. Um, anyway, um, Yeah, exactly, Tony. And that would, of course, all then be confirmed uh, by his treatment of Baron after that. Precisely, precisely. But if we want to show that, if we want to show a little more movement in Thingol's character, if we want to, but and now keep in mind, in saying this, am I saying that like Tolkien did a bad job depicting Thingol or I want to depict Thingol better than Tolkien did? No, it's just the Silmarillion narrative is a different kind of narrative. Like you, you, we don't get close to people. We don't get this kind of character development. Um, the important thing about that moment in the Silmarillion, like what is happening in that moment in the Silmarillion, it's all about the Noldor's reactions to him primarily, right? Um, and so we get the cold message and we find out that they found that it was cold. There could well be another side to that story. I'm sure there is another side to that story, but the Silmarillion, the, the way the Silmarillion narrative works as a, as a, you know, the way that that story is told, it's not big into like giving us multiple sides of each situation. Um, yeah. Um, cool. Okay. Um, and Mario also is pointing out that it is certainly also true that we can have clear differences between what Thingol tells Engrod and what Engrod tells uh, uh, tells Mytheros and the rest of them, um, even if he thinks that he's repeating it verbatim. Yes, we can introduce some subtle changes that he makes uh, in relaying the message, which are interpreted a little more violently. Um, yeah, and Boomful, we we haven't talked, we haven't been talking much about the narrator bias in the Silmarillion, but I, it's pretty clear, right, that the way that this, that the Silmarillion is like history, it's like a history book, right, um, and it is told from a very particular point of view, not just an Elvish point of view, which it is certainly from an Elvish point of view, it's not just from an Elvish point of view, but from a particular subset of Elvish point of view. Um, so yeah, no, absolutely, that's. Um, uh, and it's not a text which is making any apologies for that. Again, it's just not the kind of storytelling that we're getting. Um, but the kind of storytelling that we're trying to do in film film is a very different kind of storytelling. And that's why we end up uh, introducing some, some, some differences and doing some things that the text doesn't even attempt because it's doing something else. All right. 
So most of the story, I think I can see here really clearly. Celeborn watching Fingolfin operate as High King, right? And in that context, we get the decision about Angrod to go to Doriath. Um, and I think Celeborn stays. I want Celeborn staying there a little bit longer. Um, we get Angrod in Doriath, right? So we get the meeting between him and Thingol and Melian, and then we get the meeting between him and Galadriel, where he comes out and he's like, phew, oh man, like that was rough. Uh, anyway, how are you, sister? Um, uh, so we get some, we, we, we get, we need to convey where Goadriel is in her own personal emotional journey right now. And that is uh, in the slew of despond. So um, then we go back to Kilborn, right? And we, we're, we have Angrod comes back and uh, he hears, he watches the whole feud happen and does his careful observation and sees even more clearly where the fault lines are uh, there. And he sees the, uh, unwisdom of Thingol's particular approach to the Noldor here and is concerned and he decides, okay, I, I really need to get back and have a little conversation with Thingol about what's really happening here and all the things I've learned about the Noldor. On the way, though, he's going to stop and visit Círdan at the Havens. And this gives us an opportunity, by the way, to say what Círdan knows so far and what he has figured out so far, both about those burned ships. Has he learned anything more about those burned ships? And secondly, uh, has he... Um, um, has he dis uh, what what's going on right with the rebuilding of the havens and stuff? By the way, one thing about the burned ships, there would have been lots of evidence that a large body of people proceeded away from the burned ships on foot, right? So I'm thinking, when Cirdan and Celeborn discovered the burned ships in season three, they um. They investigated, but they didn't stick around for a long time. I think that their investigation would have been fairly cursory because they would have been worried that this is on an ongoing situation, right? Clearly, there was a disaster here. There was an attack. It, I mean, the only logical conclusion, as we discussed last year, uh, to, in Círdan's mind and Celeborn's, is that they were attacked by orcs and their ships were destroyed. Are they still in distress? Are they still being attacked by orcs? Let's go and find it. So they hasten right after the, you know, following the tracks of the Noldor until they come upon them in Mithrim, at which point they discover they're not under attack just now. So it's okay. Right. Círdan, I think on his way out, as he's going to go back to his people and return to the Havens, he is, he's going to go back to the scene, right? He's going to go back to where the ships were burned and he can make some additional observations, I think. Uh, on a like more careful study of the scene, one of the things that I kind of have to imagine he might notice is there's no evidence of orcs at all, right? There's no orc. There's no evidence of like a place where orc bodies were burned. There's no like orcish weapons or arrows or anything like that. Um, there's no sign of any orc presence anywhere around the burned ships, something which they might perhaps have overlooked the first time because their emphasis was there's live people who might still be in trouble. Let's go see what is happening. Um, but he um, um, he might then learn. So that's something that may, so maybe Kierden is getting suspicious. He's not met Angrod, right? He's not, he doesn't have that other data that Thingol has. 
but I'm thinking the burning of the ships is going to be that's the thread that Kierden is going to be following in his own sleuthing, right? In his own trying to figure out what really happened. Because, and so Celeborn can bring this back to Thingol. Celeborn can bring back the the burning of the ship. Something weird happened with the burning of those ships, right? Like they were destroyed, and yet there's no evidence of orc presence. And we haven't seen any evidence that there were any Teleri either. Um, though those are clearly Teleri ships. How could we explain this? What's going on? Um, and this, so I said, this is what I think is going to lead Kierden along the, um, along the, the, the trail that's ultimately going to lead him to hearing about the Kinslaying, right? Um, but, uh, but we can introduce that through Kelborn so that this gives us a chance not just to pop in on Kierden and be like, hi, are you building the Havens? I see the Havens being constructed. Let's move on now. Um, it really does move forward the whole suspicion plot and stuff. By the way, um, Dave, do you notice that like we are shifting, in fact, towards a kind of almost Games of Thrones-ish, like talk and rumors and politics kind of kind of episode here, right? Uh, yep. As we're focusing on the like give and take and the the in, in, you know careful interpretation of what is said and not said and and the manipulation of conversations and things. It's yeah, that was a, you know that how was some the initial shows, vision. You yeah. know how some yeah. TV shows will have this weird like suddenly like Buffy did this and a couple others they'll have like this one episode that's like a musical. Yes. Like everybody yes. sings and dances. Okay, so this could be our Go Game of Thrones episode. Right? <laughs> right. We could have the whole motif of the episode be very Games of Thrones-ish. <laughs> I'm not even looking at that. I'm not even looking at the comments window right, right. now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, no. I mean, I, that seems to be the kind of action that we're doing. So, so then from there we get Kelborn back to. Uh, back to Doriath. Angrod's gone, right? He's already delivered his 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 message because, of course, Kelborn saw that. Um, so he comes back. I don't think we have to have a conversation necessarily where, like, we 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 don't need to show like single debriefing Kelborn, right? Um, that can kind of happen off screen. I think I would think um, what we want to focus on is because Kelborn's going to meet Galadriel. Um, and as I said, I think it, it makes for a really nice turn if. It looks like we're setting Celeborn up to be this crucial political figure. In fact, people might even suspect that Celeborn is going to be the one who is going to sleuth out the kinslaying, right? That he is going to be instrumental in revealing to Thingol, to put, putting, you know, all of the clues together, coming to the proper conclusion. And, you know, so he's going to be the, you know, the, the, the Cinderin Poirot here who is going to reveal uh, to Thingol, you know, what actually happened. And then in fact, that gets reversed, right? Instead, he holds it all in, right? And, and instead of all of these, all of his observations having this political utility, which it looks like it's building up to, we can even have it come to a scene where the reader would expect, or the reader, the viewer would expect him to reveal to put together what he's what he said, right? And he chooses instead not to say anything because maybe he so he maybe he meets Goadriel first, and then he has a conversation with Thingol, and uh, and then we see him after his conversation with Goadriel, even before she has uh, confided in him at all, 
we see him pausing, right? We see him withholding um, and not drawing, you know, he, he's not going to tell him nothing, but he won't tell him everything. He won't reveal to him all of his conclusions. He will just hang on to this stuff. And instead, the conclusions he'll, he'll draw will be personal, not political. Anyway, just thinking about that. And he could, of course, Mythros's montage, right? He can see that he's going to be there in Mithrim for a while, right? Um, so uh, sometime between Angrod setting off for Doriath and Angrod returning from Doriath, he's got plenty of time to see, uh, uh, you know, uh, Mythros engaging in various training activities. Um, and he can also be watching the Feanorians leave. Um, the one thing I'm not sure of where to place or how exactly to place is the other thing, which, you know, other than the Angrod, uh, Thingol, um, Melian scene, um, segueing to the Angrod Galadriel scene. Um, apart from that, the only other non Celeborn scenes that we get in this episode are the Fanorians leaving Mithrim, the exploring of Beleriand and claiming of realms. Um, Do we have to do that in this episode? I was just going to ask that same question. It seems kind of a little bit off topic, given what we've talked about so far for this episode. Yeah, and we're going to be building things in the next episode. Like, the next episode is when they're actually going to be constructing their strongholds and things. Maybe we use we we build up to that with the explorations and stuff. Maybe we don't do this at all. Um yeah. Okay. So let's save that to episode episode four. Speaking of which, episode four. Um. So what 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 needs to happen in episode four? We've got the Noldor building a lot of towers, right? Barad Ithel, yes, Himring, Tol Sirion, uh, all kinds of defenses going up. Uh, Aeol. Ah, the story of Aeol told in flashback happens here. Um, in, perhaps in the context of him not approving of his new Fanorian neighbors. Um, uh, Celebrimbor traveling East Beleriand, sure. Um, question about meeting the houseless dwarves. If we're going to set up the Nargothron thing uh, and the, the houseless dwarves, do we want to be introduced to them? Do we want to actually meet them and encounter them? Uh, and I know Maria is eager for us not to kill them uh, when we meet them, or for the Feanorians not to kill them when they meet them. Uh, Thurin Gwethel spying on the Noldor in their new realms. Yes. Sindar moving into Nevrast, Mithrim, and Dorthonian. Yeah. So we got Turgon moving down. We've got Fingon and Fingolfin setting up. We've got Angrod and Ignor. Um, Ecthelion rescues the Sindar from werewolves in Nevrost. Of that plotline, I know very little. I think that was the suggestion that you guys had. Uh, and uh, I'm not too sure of the, um, of the background on that one. Um, the idea, I, I, you know, I guess, is to introduce Ecthelion as a as a warrior and as someone that Turgon trusts, right? So Turgon is still in Nevrast, so we'd show Ecthelion as a major captain of Turgon. That would certainly um, accomplish something. Um, we would have him. Okay, so it's mostly to establish his character, who he is, and what he does. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Fingolfin plans the Marathatterthod, yes. Ooh, okay, Nick just had an awesome brainwave. Nick, I love that idea. Nick says, do this entire episode from the point of view of Thorin Gwethel. Oh, my. That is really cool. That is a really nifty idea. That is awesome. Um, and it's only revealed at the very end, right? So we don't even know whose eyes we're seeing through. So the entire episode is like, because we can do like flyovers, which just kind of look like helicopter shots as we're going by, but it's someone actually flying, right? And then it swoops in and everyone that we're seeing, all of the different people that we're seeing and all the interactions that we watch were happening, we're, are, we're seeing from, you know, from behind something, we're seeing it from a strange angle as uh, it's like somebody who is overhearing it. Um, yeah. And, uh, but we don't know who it is. We have no idea who the, our point of view character is until the very end, the final episode, the final scene of the episode uh, will be Thorin Gwethel returning to Sauron, right? And then the camera pans off and we see it's Thorin Gwethel and she reports to him and she, and ending with the Merith Adderthad, right? Uh, that is the final thing that she sees, she overhears and, and oversees is Fingolfin um, planning the Merith Adderthad. And so that's what she returns to Sauron with. And so that sets up not only the Merith Adderthad uh, is going to be happening in the next episode, but the bad guys are going to have some plans around the Marathatter thought in the, ne in, in the next episode. Um, um, anyway, I kind of like it. Yeah. And it's, you know, exactly Nick, how hardcore we have to be as far as the camera angles and stuff. We don't necessarily have to go that far, but, um, but I like the idea of having her be completely off screen the whole time. Right. Um, until, you know, we, we can give some indication that there's a person actually there, that it's not just a disembodied camera. Right. Um, that it's actually a person's point of view, but not know who the person is. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. I. Um, I think that's interesting. Nick says the only problem there is the Aeol stuff. Yeah. Flashbacks. Hmm. How are we going to do the Aeol flashbacks anyway? Um You, what do you mean when you say how? Well, uh, how are we going to introduce, like, in the middle of the episode? Mm, that's do we interesting. Just, right? I mean, we, we have a bunch of things happening, and then we meet Ale, and then we're like, you know, do the, you know, Wayne's World thing and flashback to, I mean, how it, it's easier, right? It would be easier to introduce that flashback if we did it at the beginning of the episode. Mm -hmm. Um Yeah. Um, Tony's suggesting we could just hold the flashbacks until Aeol meets Aravel. Um, and we could have him tell the story to Aravel. That would be a lot more immediate. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Viewers wouldn't have to retain memories of him. Yes. Um, and it, it, would be, it, it would be especially interesting because Aravel... It is not said that Arathel was wholly unwilling, right? That wonderful, um, uh, you know, uh, damning with faint praise sentence there. Um, 
uh, yeah. And so therefore, sorry, let me finish my thought. What I was building up to is if we have Aeol tell Aravel the story from his point of view, right? Or he's been done wrong. We can have her be sort of recruited to his point of view, right? She can be convinced that he has been done wrong. Um, and therefore be sympathetic or at least partially sympathetic to Aeol, um, like sympathetic, but creeped out. And then the creeped out outweighs it over the years. Um, though the audience of course might be much more creeped out than Arathel. Um, yeah. Anyway, of course, the problem is that means saving until next season. Well, no. The immediate problem is <laughs> if we don't tell Ale's story, which we've never told and we keep putting off, right? If we don't tell Ale's story, who the heck is he? I mean, how can we even he introduce him as a up. character? Yeah. I mean, like, we just show this, like, you know, like, how do we keep our viewers from being like, dude, who's the goth elf? And why, you know, and like, where did he come from? Like, well, I mean, hard. he only really doesn't – he really – I mean, his his main role really doesn't crop up until Aracel's departure from Gondolin, right, and her right. running into him. I mean, yeah. I don't see anything wrong with introducing him at that point, especially if we're going to, you know, cover his backstory at that point. I don't know. Tony uh, points out we do still have his connection with the dwarves, so we could just stick oh, to that. Oh, yeah. That's you know, true. we – I guess all we really need to establish is he's a kind of weird loner Sindar who lives in this area and hangs out with dwarves. Right. Um, and the full he have tattoos, <laughs> the full, the full story, right. Of his, um, of his complaints and his, uh, uh, you know, all the ways in which he's been done wrong um, can be held for later on. He can be a bit of a mystery. Okay, so there's this random Sindar living out here who hangs out with elves and 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 is a smith. Um, why do we care about him and what's he doing? Marielle, we do need the sword in Thingol's possession, but we don't need it for a while. It's not going to do anything. He, uh, I mean, Beleg is the first one to do anything with Anglakel, and that's not going to happen until later on down the road. So, yes, we need to establish that it got in Thingol's possession, but we were already going to do that in flashback, right? So if we flashback now in season four, we flashback later in season five, what difference does it make, right? We're still flashing back. Um, hmm. Yeah, I do think we run a risk either way, right? Because we're not the, the central Aeol story is Aravel, um, his relationship with Aravel. So we have one of two choices. Okay, one of three choices. We have one of three choices. Um, number one, 
we introduce him as we were planning before. We introduce him now, we give the flashbacks, we tell his story so we know who he is. Um, but then we make people wait until next season for his real story. Like, you know, the, for the Ardell story. Or option two, we kind of make introduce him as a mysterious character and don't really give his backstory and flashback until next season when it's immediately relevant to the Ardell story. Option three is we don't even introduce him at all and we keep him off stage completely until season five when we introduce him for the Ardell story. Uh, and then we can do flashbacks then. Um, uh, we don't. I'm leaning toward. I'm leaning toward the. I'm leaning toward the uh, one of the later two options. I, I'm thinking. I'm thinking that, uh, like, if we introduce him now, he's not really integral to anything that's happening right now. Like the only reason to introduce him yeah, now. Yeah, that was kind of fun. Right. Yeah, is to like character foundation for who he is. And I'm of the opinion that right now we don't need his backstory. Like, like if we're going to introduce him now, he should kind of stand on his own by, you know, the, the audience should learn about him by observing him, participating in events, interacting with other characters. And then the right. backstory reveal, I think the backstory reveal should come when it is most relevant, which is in the Arithel story. Right. And if the audience's response is, hey, who is this strange, weird, moody, random elf? Well, that's what all the Noldor are saying. Who is this strange, weird, random right. <laughs> elf? You know, right. like they don't know who he is either or why no, he's right. himself. I mean, he's an oddball. Um, yeah. 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 It's true. The only real role that he was going to have in the plots were going to be around the dwarves and the Feanorians. Remember, we talked about introducing him into the whole Carnathir and the Tolls and their interactions with, you know, Carnathir's enrichment of himself and um, uh, and maybe bringing in uh, the knife Angrist uh, in some way with that story, remember? And um, uh, yeah, okay. But but I agree we don't have to do the whole backstory in order to do that. Um, and yeah, if they have stories about who he is, so does everybody else. So, okay. So let's forget the, let's forget the flashbacks. Let's put off the flashbacks. Yeah, um, honestly, I, I was, as the more I thought about the more I was like, this is going to be kind of awkward and we kind yeah. of crammed in. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So, if we don't do the flashbacks, so what happens? I love the idea of Thurin Gwethel binding this all together, that the episode might feel strange. It might feel like, why are we just look like observing and getting these scattered bits and like, here's what's happening in this realm. Here's what's happening in this realm. And it doesn't seem to be tied together in any way, but it turns out the mechanism, the unifying mechanism of the episode is the enemy spying. Right, the enemy gaining intelligence about what's happening uh, in the in the realms of the elves, and in particular, focusing on the development of the 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 Leaguer of Angband. Right, how they're they are building their defenses to keep um, Morgoth uh, here under siege in the north. So showing showing that. So instead of having a converse, having doing that through exposition. Right. Instead of so we can make up Valerian and its realms 
a useful thing, right? Instead of having them sit around and being like, okay, so we need to find a way to ring him in. So let's have one of like a, like one, you know, the farm your map conversation from the two towers, right? Let's have somebody pointing to things on a physical map uh, showing where we need to build strongholds, right? Instead of doing that, we just show Thor and Gwethel spying on them all. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I like it. So this also means that, like, in a sense, if the conversation that's overheard, if the dialogue that we get in this episode is kind of more fragmented than usual, that's kind of interesting, actually, right? Um, but what should be... So if we think about the overall sort of plot thrust, and in particular, like, what what conversations are being overheard, right? What is she going to learn? The way that we need to think about this is like, what is the report that she's going to have to give to Sauron at the end of this episode, right? Um, what are the overall messages? What are the stories that she is learning and is going to transmit to Sauron? So obviously, story number one, the elves have decided to besiege Angband. Right. They have decided to build a series of fortifications, uh, both capitalizing on the natural fortifications such as Dorthonian, right, the highlands and um, uh, and of course the the the, the mountains around uh, Hithlum and everything. Right. So they're they're and the hills of Himring. They're going to they're going to they're going to capitalize on that in order to set up a defensive front, which they believe will contain the armies of Morgoth in the north indefinitely. Right. So that's story number one that we are going to learn with Thurin Gwethel, right? That she will have to relate back to Sauron. We also, of course, are working up to the Marath Adarthad and the plans for the Marath Adarthad. Um, therefore, through that, what else do we learn? What else does Sauron learn? Yeah, Nick, exactly. She's going to learn that the Noldor are definitely hiding something from the Sindar. Yes. Yes. Um, they need to learn about the tensions. Remember, Morgoth doesn't know about the kinslaying. Sauron doesn't know about the kinslaying. Does she find out about the kinslaying? I think this seems as good a time as any for her to overhear about the kinslaying. Yeah, I think I think it's time. So that from now on, from episode four on, the bad guys know the truth and can begin their active campaign to undermine um, uh, to undermine the um, the peace, the Marathatarthad, the, the the reconciliation. So how does she hear it, Marielle? That's my next question. Um, who's she going to learn it from? Amros, Marielle suggests. We haven't had Amros in a while. Uh, Amros yelling something at his brothers would be one option. Ooh, letting it uh, kind of leak out. Yeah, yeah. Um, We've had, we can easily have Angrod having follow-up conver follow conversation with somebody else after 
you know, so Angrod is going to leave that previous meeting with wounded feelings, right? Wounded feelings, which are going to continue to be wounded and lead to his outburst in front of Thingol later on. Um, but we could show somebody, Ignor, possibly, Turgon, possibly, trying to assuage his hurt feelings, right? And if Thur and Gwethel were to overhear that conversation, then that would be revealing, right? It would be revealing both of, yeah, Tony was suggesting Turgon. It would be, um, uh, yeah. No, Nick, I agree. Having conversation, having like, two people having a conversation where one of them, uh, where someone tells someone else something they already know is weird. Yes, I agree. Um, <laughs> and that's of course often done super clumsily in TV and movies. Um, Let's uh, not do that. Yeah, I agree. That's why Mariel's suggestion of an Amros emotional outburst is attractive. Um, I, guess, I guess that's why I'm, I'm I, and, and why I'm going to Angrod too, because there's a reason to sort of be talking about this with Angrod, right? Um, and there's no reason that one person has to reveal the whole thing explicitly right we don't have to over have her overhear an incredibly stilted conversation in which someone is like well you will remember that time when we killed all of the Teleri in Alqualande, right oh yeah that was bad it's a good thing no one is finding out about that right um i mean we, we, we don't have to yes uh nick says that the the trope is called as you know um yes exactly um we don't have to, obviously we don't have to have that. She can put it together through a number of conversations, right? Somebody just has to make an, an allusion to it, right? Um, all someone has to do, like, so Amros could be mad and he could refer to Alqualande, right? He could refer to the burning of the ships. Um, um, you know, ever since the burning of the ships or something like that. And she's like, burning of the ships, do tell, right? Um, and so she's trying to figure uh you know, more of that out. Um, Marielle says, yeah, yeah. Uh, who are you to lecture me uh, when you have the blood of innocence on your hands as a kind of thing that somebody could say, which would certainly pique her curiosity and reveal to Thuringwethel that there is in fact a deep, deep, dark secret here. Um, I don't think that they need, the bad guys need get all of the details, right? So let's, let's, let's think about it this way. What exactly do we want Thorin Gwethel to know by the end of the episode? We want her to know the depth of the division between the Feanorians and the other Nolor, right? And she can get that by overhearing Angrod, because Angrod is still ticked, right? Um, so that's easy enough. Um, we want her to get the fact that there is, as Marielle says, a deep, deep, dark, dark secret right um yeah as mariel adds and that there's good reason for it that, that that there's the division between them and that there's an actual grievance that lies between them and not just um you know it's not just a personality clash um yes she needs to know about the kinslaying that is that something like that happened she needs to know that there is blood on the hands of the Noldor. I think that they should learn that. They should learn that there is a desire 
for them to reconcile, right? She should know that the primary strategy of the elves is a to, I mean, this is what, where Mithros and Fingolfin are, right? We need to join together. We need to work together. We need to agree. We need to all get along and we need to work in order to, so that we can hold Morgoth in leaguer, right? So she knows their goal, which is a siege. And she knows that reconciliation is the thing that they're pushing for. So, cause it's not even necessarily going to occur to Sauron and Thorin Gwethil immediately that turning them again, like they're not going to realize that turning them against each other is going to be as easy as this, right? They're not going to realize how much groundwork has already been laid uh, for them, right? So that's the thing that they need to get a general sense of, even if they don't know the details. They don't even need to know what exactly happened. They don't need to know the details of the Kinslight. They just need to know that there's blood on the hands of the Noldor, right? Um, Though Sauron might make a shrewd guess when he finds out about blood on the hands of the Noldor, burning of the ships, the Noldor are not telling the Sindar about what happened, right? The non-communicativeness of the Noldor to the Sindar. Um, and because so, see, the difference between Sauron and Thingol, to Thingol... The kinslaying is inconceivable. They cannot imagine, of all of the things that they think might have happened, they cannot imagine that that's the thing that happened. Like it is so far off their radar screen that they're just, it's going to take overwhelming evidence for them to, believe, to, 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 to think that, right? Less so for Sauron. Um, I think that Sauron is going to be much quicker to suspect the truth because he doesn't have that kind of resistance. Um, yeah, Nick. Exactly. Nick is thinking that uh, uh, to have sort of to have Sauron kind of Sherlock it from what she tells him, right? From the bits that she gleans uh, from people. So she comes back with this, you know, list of observations, these tidbits that she's picked up, and he puts it all together uh, and theorizes that. Um, okay. Um, She will also see positive things. Tony, I think you were suggesting this before. You know, we, we're not just having her see all the dirty laundry of all of the elves. She's also going to, um, she's also going to see what's happening in Turgon's realm, right? She's going to see the positives there in Turgon's realm. Um, both his strength, if we do the Ecthelion rescuing Sindar. So my understanding of this suggestion is that this is the answer to the question, why, because I, I believe I was asking this question before, right? Why is it that in Nevrast, we get this large mingling of Sindar and Noldor? Um, and this, I think, would be the answer to the question, right? That they accept Turgon and Turgon's leadership because he helps and protects them. Um, they're in serious danger and he saves them. And so they come and live with him in Nevrast and everyone is happy and they become the Gondolindrim thereafter. Um, that works for me. And she can see that too, right? Heck, maybe that's what she sees first. Um, maybe we start the episode with that sequence. Um, she is sent, so we, we have her as sort of 
watching over the attack, right? She's watching over the werewolf attack in Nevrast, and then uh, she sees it thwarted by Excelion and the Sindar coming in. So she's going to have some uh, bad news for Sauron at the beginning, um, but then she goes around and sees other things. Um, Okay. What character movement do we want to show? She's not going to be able to see this, right? Because she won't have seen the earlier points. But we will want her to oversee some things which represent a move forward, either in storyline or in character for some of the elves that we've been working with, right? And of course, one downside to the th- to a Thurin Gwethel point of view episode is that we can't get inside Doriath. So we're not going to have any opportunity to show any progress between Galadriel and Celeborn, but that's okay. We're going to have their big moment at the Marath Adderthad. So as long as we have them meet each other a second time and maybe even have a brief conversation in which Celeborn perceives her sorrow, right? Um, he doesn't understand it yet, but he perceives her sorrow and is kind to her. And she perceives his kindness, but is still too wrapped up in things to open up yet at that point. Then when they come back and have their conversation at the Marath Adderthad, um, then that uh, would that would seem to set that up pretty well. So okay, so we can't do anything in Doriath if we're if we're being throwing Gwethel, but that's okay. We don't need it. Um, we want to show Mithras. We can show Mithras, right? Post training montage, we can so show Mithros and Mithros's leadership. We can show the difference between Mithros and many of the other Feanorians. We can show Mithros's focus on the goal, right? His focus on the um, on the siege and the war against Morgoth, and he doesn't care about politics. He's super willing to work with Fingolfin and with Thingol and with anybody else who will join in the battle against Morgoth, and we can show how especially Kelegorm and Kurafin are not quite as focused on that, right? They're um, less totally dedicated um, to the to the cause there, to the to the war than Mithras is. And so she can see that as well. Um, yeah, Marie says Hakan is suggesting Celebrimbor would be visiting different Feanorians. Yeah, I don't think we have to have a group like all six of them, six surviving Feanorians together, uh, and she's spying on their meeting together. We just need to show Mithras and somebody else, like maybe Kurafin. Maybe Kelligorm, maybe Amros, um, and then we can have Kelebrimbor wandering around. That's okay. Um, it's okay. Tony Mead says he's going to write a paper someday <laughs> comparing Mythros, Jamie Lannister, and Luke Skywalker. Oh my! Uh, I have this picture of Kelebrimbor wandering around, just wandering around. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Just... Yeah. Hey, you, you know, know he's. Gonna, he's He's going to go and walk about. Hey, well, yeah. One of the things I like about this is, you know, in the, in, in the episode three, you know, we've got sort of the per, interpersonal stuff going on, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and then it's really interesting because this I like – and then now in four, we're seeing this sort of expan- geographic expansion thing going on. Um, yes. I think it's – I think these two episodes, you know, back-to-back like this are going to work really well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Um, And 
we can take the opera. So let's choose what places is she going to go? She can fly over a couple others. We can see a few from a distance, but I don't think we need to stop in everywhere. Whose characters is she going to overhear? I think she needs to overhear a Feanorian conversation. I, th I think she's overhear Mythros, Mythros and somebody else. And th so this, that happens at Himring. So we can see the defenses at Himring. Uh, and Mythros in place. Um, uh, we can... Turgon, right? We're going to get Turgon, clearly, in Nevrast. So she can even kind of follow, like, follow Ecthelion home and uh, watch as Turgon welcomes the Cinderin refugees, right, who have just been chased and uh, uh, hunted by the werewolves and Ecthelion rescues them and takes them home, right? And uh, and we can see them kind of integrate, you know, being welcomed into Nevrast by Turgon. Um, she would have that to report back, like, as, you know, that Turgon... Turgon, we we got to look out for that Turgon guy, right? Um, some major threat might come from him. You never know, right? Um, that I think would be uh, would would make a lot of sense. Plus, we did, haven't done much with Turgon this season, really, at all so far. So, um, showing him in Nevrast would be good. Okay, so she goes to Nevrast. She goes to Himring. She goes to Nevrast. We want to send her off to somewhere else among the Feanorians. Um, so do we need to see what Kelligorum and Kurafin are up to. Um, we could meet Celebrimbor there. He's hardly traveling if he's still home with dad, still living in his parents' house. Uh, so we'd have to show him with Karanthir. Yes, if we wanted to show Karanthir and the dwarves. So Thorin Gwethil would see... So we could see some of the interactions that we were talking about between Karanthir and the dwarves, the tolls and things like that, could be done from Thuringwethel's perspective. Um, okay, maybe. So Himring out at Karanthir's Nevrast. Dorthonian. We need to establish Dorthonian. Nobody even knows where Dorthonian is, right? We need to we need to know where Dorthonian is because that's where Baron's going to come from. So she should go to Dorthonian. Plus, also Dorthonian is a good way of showing the um, the again to to establish that the the leaguer is being established, right? The siege. Yeah, so let's get to Dorthonian. Oh, wait, Marie, what was meant to be in episode six? What am I jumping ahead on? The Oh, the dwarfs, right? The Carinthia and the dwarfs. Okay, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not, I'm just, I'm just this is me brainstorming stuff that Thorin Gwethel could see, right? So if we don't want to do with the dwarfs until until six, that's fine. We don't have to do that. Um, you know, we can just show, I'm just trying to find out if we want to show Celebrimbor, um, we want Celebrimbor to be one of the speakers that she's overhearing, and we want him not to be just standing half a step behind his father. Um, I'm trying to think of where else he's going to be, right? Because there aren't so many options. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. So one of the other, the Feanorians. Dorthonian. At Dorthonian, 
she can see a conversation between Ignor and Angrod. And so that's where we can get some of Angrod's show, Angrod's festering anger, right? And his resentment towards Caranthir and the, uh, in particular and the Fanorians in general. Their con in their conversation, a grumpy, angry Angrod can uh, s say some indiscreet things, right? Um, so she, So what data would she get from him? She would get... Um, he could speak, I mean, he's speaking in-house, right? Uh, literally in-house. So um, he could say something accusatory about the Feanorians, right? Um, I mean, he doesn't have to do an as-you-know thing. Instead, he would just be like, he, he could just say something like, yeah, and you know, we're not the ones who killed the Teleri. They are. The, 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 they're the ones who caused all this problem. They're the one who, we weren't even there, right? Um, the crossing of the Helcaraxa, right? Yeah, he could, he could, he could, you know, recall um, sort of reinforcing. His, we could even have him making a, I don't know if we want to make, have him making a vow, but something along those lines, sort of like pledging that he's like, you know, because remember, he we had him suggest he was the one who was motivated to cross the Helcaraxa because he wanted to get vengeance on the Feanorians. He has since been talked down, right? But we can show Angrod being like, I'm untalked down, right? I'm talking myself back up again. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Tony's wondering if we could show Beleg and or Mablung doing something in order to bring Doriath into it at all. Hmm. You know, Tony, I'm a little bit tempted to show Beleg and Dorthonian, uh, because of course that's where he's going to die. Um, but I don't think we have to. Hey, that scene that we were thinking of with um, Telkar and the helm, the dragon helm, could we bring that in here? Does that need to happen later? Could that be a conversation that Thurin Gwethel overhears? I'm asking because I literally don't remember what plot role that was meant to have. I remember that we talked about that just in the context of wanting A, to introduce the dragon helm, and B, and not make it just look like a Matham handed down from one ungrateful person to another. Um, it does need to happen after the dragon appears. Well, technically, I guess. Uh, yeah, fine. Fine, fine. Yeah, we kind of turfed that scene to next season, didn't we? Fine. Okay. Um, where else? Tulsirian. Right? We want to establish Finrod in his, you know, in Minas Tirith. Right? Yeah, Finrod in his tower, Marie, exactly. Um, plus, Thorin Gwethel's going to die there. So, you know, that's fun. Um, connecting her there seems especially important for that reason. So, okay. So we, what does, what does she see there? What do we accomplish? Who, whom is Finrod talking to and about what? If 
Angrod and Aignor, we could bring Angrod and I mean, having Finrod talking Angrod down makes a lot of sense. But I want her to go to Dorthonian. And since that's where Angrod is living, we might as well have her be looking into his living room. Um, so... Oradreth can be with Finrod, sure. Yeah, no, that's easy enough. Yeah, no, it's easy enough to get him an interlocutor. What are they going to talk about? From this conversation, we can learn about Finrod's determination to be part of the siege, right? We had talked about that as being Finrod's character's perspective through through season four, right? That he, the difference between him and Turgon is that Turgon is going to... Um, you know, be isolationist, and whereas Thingol is going to be secret but not isolationist. Um, yeah, Kierden could be visiting. That's true, Marie. Kierden could be visiting. Kierden and Finrod need to be close. Yeah, now I like that. Yeah, let's have Kierden there because this also can we can use that to follow up on the implications we had in the previous episode that Kierden is sleuthing. Right, Kierden is trying to get to the bottom of things. So we could have Kierden and Finrod having an uncomfortable conversation, right, as he's asking him about the ships. What does Finrod say when Kierden asks him about the ships? Because surely, if Kierden is has all these unanswered questions about the ships and these disquieting theories that he is being forced to. Um, Logically, the thing he's going to do is he's going to go and ask. And when he f discovers that there is someone not too far away among the Noldor who is a kinsperson, right? Uh, Finrod is the logical choice for him to go in and introduce himself. Marielle and Marie both say that Finrod can say I wasn't there. Of course. Um, that would be his only evasion, but he'd still be rampantly evading, right? He knows full well why there were no orcs there and why there's no evidence that there were Teleri there. Um, uh, because, of course, it's, not, it's noteworthy. So remember, Kierden has seen the place where the ships were burned and a, a, path, a path leading inland, right? Uh, and so he follows them, expecting to find Sindar, right? Expecting to find Teleri, rather, right? Um, the Teleri who sailed the Teleran ships. And so they might need help. So let's go find them. So, and when he goes there, he finds Noldor and nothing but Noldor, not one solitary Teleri among them. So did the Teleri all go home? Did they all get killed to a, you know, every man, woman, and child of them get killed in that battle? What happened? Um, so yeah, Finrod can say I wasn't there, but because he wasn't, and that is the, he can kind of hide behind that. Um, he can say I wasn't there. He can't say I don't know what happened. And he can't, he would have to pretend like he does not know the answers. Many of the questions that Kierden is asking, he would know the answers to. Why were there no Teleri there? Um, was it or was it not orcs that attacked the ships? He wasn't there, but he, he's heard, he knows what happened. Um, yeah. Um, so, y'all need to think about that. So our, our script folks can think about, um, uh, 
can work that conversation out. But I love that. Let's have Kierden and uh, Kierden and Finrod. And again, one of the things that comes out clearly from that conversation is that Finrod. Uh, we see Finrod being in this delicate position, wanting to remain true to both sides, but being really torn. Um, and we see Kierden's suspicions and pressing for information. And we see Finrod's determination to be part of the siege, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, see, Karita, I also think that Kierden the Shipwright it probably has a pretty good BS detector. So, uh, yeah. It's going to be it's going to be awkward, no question. Um, Maria, I think they can be talking about a siege. They're talking about holding Morgoth in leaguer, right? They're they're this is yeah, um, their plan, their goal, their military goal is something that can become very clear to Thorin Gwethel as she discovers all this stuff. Okay, then the Marathatarthad. So that's going to be. Fingolfin. What order do these go in? Um, we don't want to get into Dave's pro even though she can fly, we don't want to get into Dave's problem of having her suddenly appearing in vastly different parts of Beleriand. Um, so we should have her go in more or less uh, um, in more or less uh, direct order, right? Geographical order. So if we start with her shadowing the werewolves in Nevrast, so she starts with Turgon on the coast in Nevrast. Then from there, she could go to Tolsirian and spy on Thingol and Círdan. From, from there, she could go to Dorthonian, doing a detour around the Chrysigrim because of eagles. Um... And she could see Barad Eithel from a distance. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking west to east, Nick. What if Fingolfin is visiting Mithros? What if we have Fingolfin and Mithros talking about their military goals at the end? And she overhears that conversation and... Um, And the the plans for the Marathatarthad, Fingolfin can be explaining to Mithros. He can be pitching the Marathatarthad to Mithros. That would work. That would work. Um, or Fingen, yeah, Fingen speaking for Fingolfin. Sure, Fingen visiting Mithros is obviously perfectly natural. Um, Yeah, Tony is still determined to have Bellig and Mablung get in on this somehow. I, you know, Tony, I still kind of think if we're gonna um, if we're gonna get Bellig and Mablung in, I would be perfectly fine send, sending them to Dorthonian. Yeah, Murray. See, to me, the downside of having it be Fingon instead of Fingolfin is that then we wouldn't see Fingolfin at all in this episode, um, and I would kind of like to keep him as the more central figure when it comes to the setting up of the Marathatarthad. And that both of them can be there. I mean, Fingolfin and Fingon both could have come. Uh, I guess that seems a little imprudent. Um, 
Marie, I think I understand the pressure that you are putting on my references to the siege. Uh, you know, she says, uh, you know, the siege isn't a post-Dagor Aglareb thing. What I'm referring to is their defenses, right? They are establishing defenses. Um, but I think from the beginning, there has to be the question from the beginning of what's the plan? What's our goal? What's our realistic goal, right? Mithros wants to attack. Mithros wants to destroy Angband. I think that Fingolfin from the beginning is in the more, I think like we need to hold him in, right? Um, and at the very least they can both agree, Mithros and Fingolfin can both agree that priority number one is building a ring of defenses, right? So that they are first and foremost prepared for Morgoth's attack. But the question then is having established those defenses, now what? Now do we move on the offensive or do we just hang and wait? Um, so we don't have to get to that full-fledged discussion now, but I think we want to we wanna sow the seeds of that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, they're certainly not ready to attack. I, I don't think even Mithros thinks that's on the table yet. Um, but I think that we can begin to show that there's disagreement about what that ultimate goal is. Um, yeah, I kind of, Nick, I kind of like bringing Fingolfin to see him ring. If we have it be Fingen, it's very natural, of course, very natural to have Fingen and my, you know, visiting Mithros and, you know, them keeping up with each other after the, you know, how's the training montage going? Uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's very natural for the two of them to stay in touch, but, but I don't think we need to do that. Um, and my fear is that it would make the visit kind of too personal. Um, whereas if it's Fingen, Fingolfin and Mithros, it's a little bit more formal there. Um, <laughs> Tony's like, Belling and Mablon could could be there to be negotiating with the Marathoder thought. Um, nah, because they're not going to negotiate. They're just going to come on their own. They're not going to... Um, yeah, oh, and that's a different question. But that's a question for the next time when we talk about episode five. All right, um, this is good. I feel like we've got a really good sense of this. We've got just a couple more minutes left, and in that time, I want to talk about the language barrier question. Okay, so we have the Sindar and the Noldor meeting. Uh, until now, the elves have been speaking English, except for names or the occasional word or phrase uh, as Lapine is used in Watership Down. Uh, yes. Footnote on Lapine in Watership Down. The reason that the Lapine words in Watership Down are so effective and so like why so many people emerge from reading Watership Down with Lapine words that they continue to use in daily conversation for the rest of their lives, right? In particularly Tharn uh, is one of those excellent words uh, that you get. The, what Adams did such a wonderful job of in Watership Down is introducing and using Lapine words throughout the dialogue and throughout the story when Lapine has a word for something that we don't have a word for in English, right? There's no translate, there's no one word translation for Tharn. So they, he, they, he has them say Tharn in the midst of their translated English, right? Um, 
and that's that's you know the same with uh, with you know more subtly with other words like elil right which is their word for enemies or silflay tony exactly um enemies doesn't quite do it right like you can't like that that collective noun for all of the predators that seek to kill us and eat us is different we don't have a word for that exactly in english right so um so he uses that too i think that we can be self-conscious about elvish words in the same kind of way that we can use el so if we do have occasional elvish words or phrases they shouldn't just be egregious they shouldn't just be brought in you know for color um they should be kind of used in that way when there are concepts that are they exist in and this is in particular what i'm thinking of or i should say in general what i'm thinking of are all of these conversations that we've been having over the last few years about the differences between elvish culture and human culture how it is that you know the the, the many different ways in which elves just see the world differently from how we do one of the ways i think we can draw attention to that is linguistically by dropping in elvish terms for something. So like when we were talking about the kinslaying and talking about the you know uh, grief and mourning among the elves, what does an elf do when their relative dies? How do they respond to that emotionally? Well, maybe we use a different word. We don't use the human word. We don't use the English word for you know mourning or grief. Maybe we use a different word. Maybe we use an elvish word there in order to try to convey, to try to capture this is not the same thing. This is this is not translatable simply as grief or mourning as we would normally use that term. Like Estelle for hope. Yes, Marie, exactly. Because what the English word hope usually means to people is not the same as Estelle. Um, so we don't use the word hope. We use the word Estelle instead. Um, yeah, Tony was thinking about that distinction, uh, the Amdir Estelle distinction as well. It's a great illustration. So... I think that we can use uh, elvish terms, but I think that we need to do it deliberately like that, not just kind of sprinkle it in for the heck of it. Um, anyway, okay, footnote aside. How do we want to convey the language barrier between the Sindar and the Noldor? Uh, have the point of view characters in the scene continue to speak English while the language they don't understand is spoken by others with subtitles? Have English used in scenes where everyone understands and switch to both Quenya and Sindarin with subtitles when groups who don't understand one another are together in a scene or some other method? Um, we can make use of telepathy, um, such as with Finrod and Goadriel, to overcome the language barrier. I want to make very limited use of telepathy. Um, I feel like as soon as we start having people communicating, just communicating directly telepathically, we're opening up a can of worms that I'm not sure we're fully prepared uh, to deal with. Um, so yes, the uh, Tony, the Vikings example, I think is a really good example. I also really, I've not watched the whole Vikings um, show, but I've seen some examples of this and I think it's, it's, it's it, I agree it's done really well. Um, I think what this means is I am, inclining towards option two here um assuming everybody because if we if we just if we focus on the point of view character that can get confusing right we have we, we'd have to signal that really clearly i think it's possible but i think if we stick to the second as a general rule that is if everyone is speaking english on screen that means everybody in the room understands everybody but when we have two groups of people who are not understanding each other, 
then we have both of them speaking in different languages and everybody subtitled. The advantage here is that that's not going to happen that much at all, actually, because elves are really quick to learn languages. So the language barrier does not persist for long. There are very, very few scenes in which we're going to have a group of Sindar and a group of Noldor kind of just wondering what each other are talking about, right? The question is going to be, when we get to the language ban, right, then like, are you speaking in Quenya? That's going to become an interesting dynamic, right? Because we're going to have a room full of bilingual people who speak both Quenya and Sindarin. So in theory, according to our principle here, no matter which language they speak, we can represent it as, as English, but we want to make sure that our viewers know, are they speaking in Quenya or are they speaking in Sindarin, right? Because after the ban, speaking in Quenya is significant, right? That has plot and character importances. So, um, yes, Marie, I think that in Doriath, the visiting Noldor can speak Sindarin. Um, because they've they've they're very quick at picking up languages, right? So we have a language barrier when Celeborn and Cirdan show up, right? That's the first time that any of us, the viewers or the elves themselves, are confronted with the fact that the language has changed, right? Um, but they've been living together for, I mean, like even by episode two. Remember, Mithros is recovered. Uh, from his, you know, he's not yet done his training montage, but he's he's better, right? Time has passed between episode one and two. At least weeks uh, uh, has passed between episode one and two. So yeah, they've, I mean, Galadriel's had enough to pick up Cinderin by that time. Um, so yeah, I think we can do that. Um, They could talk about it. I could imagine it coming up in conversation um, between Goadriel and Thingol at the beginning. A little reminder that they speak different languages, but that Goadriel is speaking Cinderin now. Right? I mean, she could say, you know, she could say a, a greeting in Quenya, which is subtitled, and then she could switch to, to English, aka Cinderin, right, speaking in their language. And they could kind of comment on, you know, like Thingol could kind of be like, whoa, that was interesting. Um, you could compliment her on her accent. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Your Cinderin <laughs> is excellent. Glad yes. you know. Great right. accent. Yeah. 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 Sounds like you've been listening to Celeborn talk. You know, you kind of sound like Celeborn. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, again, to me, the really the, the I, I think that that, me, that that mechanism, that second mechanism of handling the language barrier seems to me fine. It's going to be more of an issue with dwarves, right? Um, though they will be not as quick, but they will be even more eager uh, to learn Cinderin because they don't want to teach their native language. Um, so we could have. When Caranthir meets the dwarves, we could have a language issue, right? Um, yeah, and yeah, I got a question. Issue. Yeah. 
Sorry, go ahead. Are we going to tip our hat to the fact that Tolkien actually built in the natural evolution of language in his Sindarin and Quenya? That's, I think, what was in the back of my mind when I mentioned ah, it okay. coming up in conversation between Goadriel and Thingol, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. okay. um, even just Thingol saying something like, your language is strangely changed, right? Um, uh, it's kind of like a philologist Easter egg there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, or Melian could say, and now Melian, oh, she's true. not chatty enough. She wouldn't comment on it. Yeah, no. um, I don't want Melian to say too much. Um, but, ooh, Tony suggests that Aeol should be the only elf who speaks Kuzdul. Ooh. That's, I, I like that. That's really interesting that he is he is sufficiently accepted among the dwarves to have actually learned their language, I think is uh, that's cool. I like that. I like that really setting him apart. Um, but again, we have to convey to the viewers when we show, you know, Telkar and Aeol hanging out around the forge, we have to show we have to convey to the viewers it, this is Kuzdul that they're speaking. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I was wondering, Nick, was he established as a lobbyist? I'm like, Norn was a lobbyist? <laughs> <laughs> right, the linguist. He linguist. Right, he is a linguist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so, yeah, <laughs> Boomful says, well, it's really simple. When you're having them speak Kuzdil, they just speak in Scottish accents. So that's easy enough. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, that's, I guess, let me just throw that back to the discussion boards as a challenge. I, I, I think that second one where they're both speaking, where everyone is speaking a foreign language and it's just being subtitled, I really like that mechanism. I think it works really well in Vikings. Um, I've heard lots of really positive responses to the way they did that in Vikings. Uh, so I think that's really cool. Um, and again, it's not going to come up super often. So it's not like we're going to be dedicating huge portions of uh, any given season to everybody speaking, not speaking English on screen. Um, so I think that's fine. The challenge that I, that I want to give back to the discussion boards about the language thing is how do we convey when they're speaking English, because everybody on screen understands the language, how do we make sure that we convey what language they're all speaking? Um, whether it be Kuzdul or whether it be, you know, whether it be Ao and Telkar speaking Kuzdul, whether it be, Karanthir and Kurufin defiantly speaking Quenya after the ban, whether it be, um, you know, a, a, a clear that, I mean, here's another thing. Wouldn't it be cool for Celeborn when he has his conversation with Galadriel at the Marathatarthad to speak in Quenya, right? He speaks her language to her. Um, cause he's had plenty of time to learn it. Right. Anyway. Okay. So, uh, um, that's, uh, that's my question. How do we do? Cause th that I'm not, I'm not sure how to do. And I don't want to just do like an awkward subtitle or something like that. Um, so how do we do that? Okay. Anyway, cool. Good. I think that that pretty much settles it. Um, uh, but, um, and I think we're ready to go. So next time 
We're going to return to some more of those creative content questions that we didn't get to last time. Um, so we're not going to proceed on to episode five immediately. We're going to we're going to pause, uh, talk about maybe some more casting questions, maybe some more uh, some some other of our creative. We got some questions from Phil, our composer, about music. So I want to talk about that stuff too. So we'll have fun. some more creative content. And stuff I may have a big announcement to make on the seventeenth. Ah, yeah, oh. theater, yeah. But yeah. I have to confirm the date, so I'll let you guys know on the seventeenth. Awesome, very good, um, cool. So anyway, yeah, cool. So so that's what we're gonna do next time, and then we'll come back and we'll do episode probably episode five and episode six for the following session after that. But we're back to every two weeks. So Friday, May seventeenth, uh, we will be back again. So. Thanks very much. Oh, that Marie says there's going to be a script discussion uh, uh, at May 11th uh, next week uh, at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, so for those who want to join that, they're talking. They're going to be planning out episode three, uh, doing the script outline for episode three. Uh, so go in the discussion boards. You can find the links to uh, uh, to be able to join them there. All right. Thanks everybody. Appreciate you guys all being with me. That was a that was a good discussion today. I think we have some really cool episodes. I'm a I'm hugely fond of the Thuring Grethel point of view episode. Oh yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Nick, that's one of your you best know, ideas in a long time. It's, we came into this episode saying this is going to be a really these are going to be a tough couple of episodes, but yeah, and they were they it's it came together yeah. really well. They're now great. I think it's good. I think it's good. All right. Thanks, everybody. I will say, as always, thanks for listening. Godspeed.